0: Welcome to No Challenges from Rating. After the 2023 Australian Open, I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined from Melbourne, Australia, by NCR's Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent, Timani Carriol, on some truly Australian Wi-Fi that hope sticks together during this episode of Connecting from Other Sides of the World. Timani, how are you doing? Congratulations on finishing the first Slam of the Year. How was it for you?
1: It's been... A lot. It's it's been a lot. It's, <laughs> it's been a long three weeks, and it's funny because it, it, at at the beginning of the tournament, it seemed like we finally had an, an Australian Open where not much outside of the tennis happened. You know, yeah. the, this this like last few years in particular, the Australian Open has been known for I don't know certain events just happen. There's something mess. always happens here. Mess. Obviously, lot like, yeah. lot like, exactly mess. Last last year was um, obviously Djokovic getting deported, but then there's even back to like. Nigel Sears getting taken away and, and oh, going to ah, hospital. Yeah. Remember, but yeah, and then obviously that wasn't the case in the second week with with all the you know the Russian protests and which I just had bumped into. And but yeah, it's, it's been it's been a good tournament and and you know ended in the women's really well with a, a great final and then with more dominance from from Djokovic. So yeah, uh, for, for once as well, it was it was the outcome. The two outcomes I actually expected. The two champions I thought. The outcome I, I definitely thought would happen in both draws.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, nothing will rouse a tournament out of its slumber like a po- pro-Putin war rally popping up on the steps of the stadium unexpectedly. Like that'll really, that'll mm-hmm. really jar you awake as a tournament. But we'll get to that. I, I do want to start though with the events of Sunday, the monumental, you know, event that was Arena Sabalenka's photo shoot in a gondola with a dog in a trophy. I thought it was, someone on Twitter called it a cultural reset. I would agree with that. I just thought it was a spectacular moment of visualization. It made me sad that we never got a Yelena Yankovic photo shoot. I was thinking that very quickly after I saw Arena's photos and what she was able to deliver for the people. You don't have to comment too much on that, but I just wanted to lead with that because that was something that's been on my mind a lot the last uh, 24 hours or so. Just seeing seeing that production, I thought it was spectacular. I've heard multiple people who plan on printing and framing these photos in their homes.
1: As they should.
0: Yeah. Irina Sabalenka is the winner of the 2023 Australian Open. Her long-awaited, I think it's fair to say, first slam, she's been kind of in the mix in the kind of conversation for contending for Grand Slams really since 2018. She came on the scene pretty quickly and had a great summer on the hard course in 2018, played that great fourth-round match at the US Open against Naomi Osaka, uh, which was really seen as a pivotal sort of sliding doors match that Osaka wound up winning, and they went winning that tournament as well. Sabalenka was right there. Sabalenka won Wuhan for the first time that year and Sabalek has been one of these players who's been in the best not to win a Grand Slam conversation for several years now and so for her to break through and get out of that group is a cherished group in women's tennis for sure but her to elevate out of that and do it in the triumphant way she did in that final especially delivering that kind of incredible performance in high-level tennis against Elena Rabacana hitting 51 winners and 28 unforced errors for a player who's known so often as being somewhat chaotic or messy in her game just in terms of you know littering the statute on both sides for her to play with such control and focus and relative precision in that final i thought was a, a real triumph i thought it was a great great match we're well too i thought it was a really for for a match that honestly had some of the lower q rating of any recent grand slam final in terms of not just having a lot of buzz around these these women outside tennis i thought they really stepped up and delivered an incredible demonstration and show for for the people in the
1: stadium and on tv yeah yeah i, I agree um I, I think just sabalenka's your yeah, first one sabalenka her kind of, I don't know, just the, the arc of her, her character arc over the past few years has been quite incredible if you think about it you know a, a couple of years ago she was a top five player but she hadn't crossed the fourth round of a slam she had two fourth rounds and mm. that's all and then you know she she crossed that step and then three semifinals and seemed to get stuck at that stage and Obviously, when you had last year, where she, as you know, as you said, she she struggled with her, her serve. She she hit, I think fifty fifty six double forts in the first four matches of Australian Open last year. Arrived in Adelaide and literally hit underarm serves during some of her matches because she like she just couldn't serve. And just to see, I don't know, just I've been just really impressed with how she's just how she addressed all those issues. She had a psychologist for a while and before deciding that she'd been given all the tools she needed and she was, you know, she said during this week that she's her own psychologist and she's doing it herself. Mm-hmm. She obviously hired a biomechanics coach. I'm wondering if that will actually be a in, influential in, in some way, um, given how it, it helped her serve and, you know, her serve was incredibly, incredibly like, effective. She, she, You know, in the final, she had seven double fours, but she had 17 aces, which is, Crazy. That's that's only Serena has hit more in in an Australian Open final mm. since in the 21st century. She was willing to go outside the box and and find help elsewhere, and and it's paid off in this tournament. As you said, I I was I was also really struck by just how just solid she was you know she again, I was, again i'm repeating what you say. just her game style you know when she emerged on tour she was just frankly let, let's be honest like she was she was a ball basher she'd, she'd be the first yeah. to say that she she was there to hit the ball as hard as possible and and that's all but she's learned how to hit to bigger margins to what well, she said that she learned how to work you know she she now knows that she has the shots she has all this ability but she has to work for things during her matches, you know, wait for the right opportunity, play to big big t- mar- margins, understand that, you know, she has not just power, but like weight of shot with the spin on, on both wings that allows her to, you know, force players back with the power instead of just going for lines. And I don't know, it's, there are many great ball strikers and, and some of them never get that. You think of, to me at least, an, an obvious player is, is Madison Keyes, who... Yeah who throughout her entire career has been trying to find that balance between, you know, having huge, huge weapons, but harnessing them. And just to see how well Sabalenka has done it throughout this year, you know, the the first month of the year has just been really impressive. And even just from the early stages, as I said, I I thought she'd win. I was convinced she'd win from quite early on just because of how sustainable it seemed. And I'll be honest, I I always thought she was capable of, of winning Sam's in the past, but I wasn't sure that she'd be that player who who could be really reliable and tournament after tournament, match after match. But she's she really showed it in, in Australia.
0: Absolutely, and she had that big win over Sviantek in Fort Worth in the semifinals of the year in Championship year, which I think also sort of signaled uh, that she had gained some of the discipline to be able to beat someone like Sviantek, who was so solid. And yeah, she is an inspiring figure because she did take her flaws as a player and her shortcomings and address them and work on them. That's what makes it compelling. You know, like I think it's really fascinating watching a player who has some sort of weakness in in tennis, whether it's, you know, Elena Dementia with the second serve and the double faults also, or, you know, even like a big serve bot, if you want to say, like who really can't defend well, seeing how they do things to compensate for that. Or like a Diego Schwartzman, let's say, for like the different side who doesn't have a big serve of men's standards at all. Or even Jensen Brooksby, who has a pretty weak serve. Like seeing people who have to work for something and fight that demon in the corner to find much more interesting in a lot of ways, and more textured than somebody who uh, just goes out there and can do everything perfectly. And when Sabalenka started that Grand Slam final, her first time with a double fault on the opening point, there are a lot of like murmurs in the crowd, like, oh boy, here we go. Like, is it all going to fall apart? And there was, I did have that sense, like because she was a favorite in a lot of late round matches for the first time uh, in the quarterfinal, semifinal against Vekic and against Magdalene. She was a definite favorite. Like how would she react to that for the first time? And the wheels didn't come off, you know, they stayed on and, she didn't lose a set all year until the final of the Australian Open, where she lost a set to Rabakina. But yeah, this was her, you know, just being around Sabalenka, and see, I remember seeing her the first time in Cincinnati 2018, sort a close up in person. She's just like a big, strong, imposing athlete. She just has this like physical presence out there that's very striking when you when you see her in person, I think especially, probably comes through on TV a bit as well, but she's just built differently. She's just a big, strong player, just, you know, with a lot of just power, and, and that was unrefined often for a long time and on on the court. Uh, but now that she's refining, I think the upside is enormous, if that can stay that way. I yeah. you know think that she's on a very good track now. She's very far off the number one ranking, which is obviously sort of the thing people traditionally talk about after winning a first Grand Slam. She's still a ways off there, um, but because of how great uh, Shantek was last year, especially in the first half. But yeah, it's great having her in the mix. And it was also just great too, this sort of final where you had players... Sabalenka and who were already kind of in the conversation, just taking themselves a step further, meaningfully sort of consolidating their spots, rather than introducing two new randos, to use that term pejoratively, like, which is sometimes how the slam results have felt on the women's side in recent years, where it's like, who, where did this person come from? For both Sabalenka and Rubakina, they had meaningful uh, arcs that were being furthered and, and developed by this, which I thought was satisfying.
1: Yeah, and... I think to, to me that the biggest question in women's tennis at the start of the year was that who could who can match triontek who can you know who can hang with her, who can become a rival and, and make life difficult for her, and and I think in both R- R- Rybakina and um, uh, Sabalenka, clearly that to me at least that they're they're both capable of that. Both of them have beaten them beaten Triantec over the last few months, and yeah, to, to talk about Rybikina, um she. I think this was a an, an incredibly good tournament for her as well. That that run is crazy. It's the the run to the final is is was a lot more difficult than in, just in term on paper than um, her Wimbledon run. She yeah. beat last year's finalist Daniel Collins in the third round, a, a three setter. Then Sriontek the Chiantek, the um, dominant world number one, you know, took her apart. Didn't give her you know, didn't really give her shut well shut the door on her really in that match and then two to some ch- champions in Ostapenko and Azarenka dealt with all of it incredibly well and and in the final I, I thought she played well as well she held off Sabalenka early on in the third set when Sabalenka was playing extremely well put her pressure on the whole time but just was a bit outmatched in the rallies against a you know heavier ball striker a, a, a heavier freer ball striker I'd say and and also a, um, a better athlete and after Wimbledon, again, for her, the question was how she'd back it up, you know, when, where, if. And, and she did it incredibly well here. And so the next the next step for her is to be consistent. And But certainly, obviously, Rebecca you know, didn't receive ranking points for Wimbledon. But I leave Melbourne thinking that those are really the top three players in my mind at, at the moment, just in, in terms of what they've produced. Rebecca you know, reaching two finals in six months, Sablenka, uh, a lot that she's done. Obviously, Jabur is still there, but the, to me, they're the players who can have the game and the style and, and the ability to to push Shriantek and make life difficult for her in, in the coming months. Maybe not on clay, but elsewhere for sure. Yeah, I
0: think Rebecca is finally up to number 10. I think she's into the top 10 for the first time with this final, I believe. Yeah. Yep, she is. Yeah, that's that's long awaited. And obviously with the 2,000 points, she'd be in the top five.
1: Top five, yeah.
0: Look, she had this whole situation at the beginning of the tournament, and I flagged it, a lot of people did as well, like about how she got put on court 13 for her first match, which felt aggressive. Like even if you don't want to give (laughs) her like one of the biggest courts, like 13 was really far down. The pecking order. Like the other match on that court that day was something really obscure. I, I want to say it was like Booksa versus Ava Luce or something like that. It was like two qualifiers <laughs> and then Rubakina was sort of the level. I, that it's something like that. If that was not exactly right, but yeah, I did feel especially like against Fyontek that she felt like she had something to prove in this match. That she really wanted to go out there with Fyontek and show that she belonged in this match. And I thought that the, the Rubakina win over. Shvantec was the statement win for anybody in this whole tournament, men's or women's. I thought that was Agreed. the biggest result Agreed. of the tournament yeah. because we were talking about Shvantec, you know, before the tournament, I think fairly so is Shantek versus the field a little bit like, was that the conversation is Shantek unstoppable and seeing her back in a do things to a show herself that she can do this. And also to make Shvantec look really playable at certain points, you know, Shvantec I think was tight in in certain parts of that match and Rakana really punished her, like pretty, you know, harshly with some of those returns she was ripping. And Reckon is not known for necessarily uh, for her return being her biggest weapon, but she was really taking advantage of the Shantek serve. And it was a, a tournament that I think was maybe more of a setback for Shivantek than I expected it to be, just that match anyway, because it just felt like she was really, really outplayed. And the 6 4 6 4, I think, doesn't do justice to how lopsided to me that match felt, yeah. actually watching it. So that was really interesting. So I'm curious. I guess for those three women who you said are the top three in the power rankings, where do you think they go from here? Shvantec, Rubakina and, and Sabalenka.
1: I I do think that I agree that it was a difficult lot for Shvantec and she was just thoroughly outplayed, which you you didn't see much last year at all. Um, But I think she, she seemed to have to take it in the right way. She still, she still has two slams, you know, in, in the past 12 months and she's still the undisputed number one. She, and, yes yeah, i think she should just she she said afterwards that she felt the, she felt she admitted that she felt the pressure and you know things were a bit heavy for her before the match and clearly she wasn't able to play freely but it seemed but it seemed like she wasn't that upset she she, she i'm sure she maybe she cried in the locker room or whatever as 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 often happens but she seemed to just take it as in her stride and and as, as something to you know as as fuel Going into the rest of the season, and you know, yeah. she, can, she, she, can, I think Shriante can, can comfortably reassert herself, and that she's not going to win thirty-seven matches in a row again this year. I don't think, anyway. If she continues to play consistently, wins a couple of big tournaments, well, even just you know one big tournament also going in going into the clay season, I think that puts her in good a good position, you know, ahead of the surface where she's the most dominant player we've seen on it since Henin. Um, and so, mm. yeah, I, I don't think it's it's a, a massive deal for Shuunet for Re- Rebecca. I think she's she's now shown that twice that so she can make big runs in slams, and it's about winning consistently. She's now top ten. She doesn't have that horrible ranking that's that puts her up against a top player, you know, within two rounds in, in two three rounds in most tournaments. Yeah, she 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 now has the ranking to to build even more and. It's about consistency. I guess it's the same with Sarah Link. She she now has to deal with being a a slam champion and and all that we've seen you know, from other players in the past. I think what what's puts her in in a good position is that she's obviously been a top player for a while now. She's won 12 titles now, which is a lot. She's shown that she can be con- consistent. She, she can she can win match after match, and I'm I'm very curious about that. If her being a top player for a couple of years now allows her to just Continue on, on the path she is, rather than there being a big, you know, sophomore slump or anything, as as can happen with with top players who win with, with players who win slams for the first time.
0: Yeah, I think that comes down to psychology. I think that it all comes down to how much you feel like, and I think I do think your mind controls this in terms of how much pressure, you know, you feel because you can manufacture your own pressure far outside of what is actually in the conversation, so to speak. I remember, for example, like. Sophia Kennan coming back to the Australian Open as defending champion in 2021 and saying she was so freaked out by everyone expecting her to defend her title, which no one was. No one was really talking about Kennan at that point. as like one of the main favorites on tour is a conversation piece. But in her head, she was. And that was something that was uh, negative for her. And so I think you can just sort of find your own. And I think Shantek was a great example last year, especially during the streak, as all the expectations really did meaningfully grow and grow. And she was seen. As being a super prohibitive favorite in Paris, let's say, as someone who would only ever won one Grand Slam before, it was considered you know it was gonna be a big failure for her to not win this tournament. Uh, I think she did manage that that conversation really well. So yeah, Sab- uh, Sabalenka has a different, few different sort of you know there's different ways it can go. But I think yeah. I agree with you. I hope that her experience on tour, she's not brand new. She knows all the media. She knows all the people who are around. You know, it's not like she's entering some brave new world. Besides, again the art world consideration she should deserve for her photo shoot, which is new. Yeah. I think that she, yeah, she she's kind of an old hat at this in a good way, and she's had comfortable sort of growing. Yeah. Not completely linear, you know, straight line up, but stair steps along the way to get
1: there. So obviously the question for Sabalenka is what comes next in terms of Wimbledon, in terms of wh- whether they allow yes. her to, her and other Russians and Belarusians to compete, or if, if they uh, maintain their rules from last year and, and continue to ban Russian and Belarusian players, you know, in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because uh, if, if, if she does play, you know, if she's given the green light, then at, at the moment, she's a Wimbledon favourite in my eyes. Hmm. And obviously, if she doesn't, then that's the that's big difference for the field. And yeah, uh, we still, I think Wimbledon will be like convening in the next couple of months and and making a decision on whether or not to for this year. But I, I, nothing's been decided, and well, they well they'd argue that the government did, but they've put themselves in a in a difficult position. Now and, you know, at the, either way, it's it, it's either they go back on on what they ruled last year, and that doesn't look great, or or they continue to be the outlier in tennis. You know, where yeah. with, with Russian and better Russian players then. So
0: I was going to bring that up actually later in the show, but I I do think that it's we can talk about it now because. I do want to talk more broadly about nationality in tennis. That was one of the sort of topics with Wimbledon and this and this ban of the Bel- Russians and Belarusians. But this was a tournament where a lot of Russians and Belarusians were going deep. There was a real chance we could have had we could have had two flagless slam finals at this tournament had it been, you know, Hachinov and Rublev uh, and then Sabalenka and Azarenka. Like, these are relevant players who are making noise and who are still on this sort of like somewhat impaired participation not really they can still obviously go out and win the tournament but there's still a kind of an asterisk or just sort of a strange mark next to their names and i just don't know how sustainable that is it just feels like this weird purgatory that's not not a long-term solution. And the Russians and Belarusians aren't going anywhere. Like, this is not, you know, it's not saying that it's going to... has sort of fallen off the, the map a bit since last year's Australian Open. After getting to number one, a little bit after that, he has not been a top 10 player. He's no longer a top 10 player, actually. But look, I mean, there was an all-Russian junior girls final in in the in the Australian Open. There was uh, a Russian champion at Le Petit As. Shout out to the, one of the great tennis tennis names, Anna Pushkareva, <laughs> you know, like, what are we, Are what, what, how does this resolve itself? You're right that Wimbledon's in a, it put themselves in a tough position here, or maybe the British government put them put Wimbledon in a tough position if they want to, like, the ownership, but Wimbledon, you know, did do it. I, it's, we talked about this mm-hmm. last year, if you want to go back and listen to Wimbledon's Alex Willis, who was on the show, we did talk about that and how Wimbledon does have this sort of almost like pseudo, pseudo governmental position in British government and, and culture.
1: Which isn't great.
0: Which isn't great in this situation, for sure. Because I do want to get more broadly into nationality and tennis later in the show. But also, but then also you have this, this pro-Putin rally, which I'll tease here, that like doesn't help the case of reinstating Wimbledon, I think. No, it was Wimbledon's nightmare was what happened at the Australian Open, seeing this like pro-war rally break out on the grounds. That's crazy. That has to hugely hurt the Russian players' chances of getting back to Wimbledon, I would think, this year, even if none of them had anything to do with it. I, I don't think any of them had anything to do with it. But it just, yeah, it's, it's a mess. And... I don't know, it just doesn't feel like it's a long-term solution. Maybe it is, but it's, it's no. and maybe in tennis, something that sort of half ass could endure, but it just doesn't feel like it to me.
1: And I, I must say it was particularly, like, striking, and I don't know, it it, it made me pause to, to see the um, Sab- Sablenka's name engraved on the trophy, but without the nationality. And yeah. <laughs> is, is, is that just how it's going to be forever? Will they, you know, if, if this all resolves itself, you know, if if the war ends at some point, will they go back and inscribe her her country retro retroactively? I don't know. That was just very striking to see that, and very real.
0: Yeah, like I said, we'll get back to that the the that sort of nationalized stuff a little bit later in the show because uh, they do have like an outline, I'm feeling very professional today. I want to talk about a couple of the other women's stories briefly. Svantek, we talked about her here. Uh, Victoria Azarenka was a somewhat surprising slam semi-finalist here. She's only made it's only her second time making even the quarters of a Grand Slam since returning from maternity leave, and she only ever had done it since then at the 2020 US Open. She came out and beat Jesse Pagula, who was a popular pick to win the tournament, actually, once the top two seeds were out. Pagula, the number three seed, uh, as Ranka beat her four and one in the quarterfinals and then lost to Rabakina. She's in there. The other semifinalist, also a big surprise, bigger surprise, certainly Magdalenette who beat Pliskova and also had beaten, before that, Caroline Garcia to make the late stages after playing one of the strangest night session schedules ever against alexandrova in the third round then I backed that up with a couple more wins and anything else i guess more broadly stand out to you in the women's draw vekic fruitova there's there's other names you can throw out here if you want
1: yeah Uh, actually on on pagula i think that that's that's an interesting subject because as you said she was she started the playing incredibly well she beat shurandek in the united cup she destroyed opponents in in the quarterfinals to to reach the quarterfinals in her, her first four rounds, and and also played a great you know that match against um Barbara Krajicekova was was very good like in, in terms of quality and um yeah it was just a quality match but then but I, I let I leave here which I mean I, I actually I thought this before but I leave Melbourne just thinking that she has that her ceiling is pretty clear and and. You know the the task, the big task in her career is to to break break through that ceiling because, you know, under on, on I don't think Azarenka, you know, this wasn't 2012 Azarenka, you know, dis- destroying Sharpova in the final. It wasn't that level, but Azarenka put her under pressure and and played like, you know, the, the two-time t- champion she is, and she just couldn't keep up. So yeah, she's yeah, Pegula's obviously done a great job in her career to to get to where she is world number three at, at, but at the moment it seems like she's she's excellent at that beating players she should do she's excellent at, at bullying lower ranked players with, with with less ability but she has a ceiling
0: i think that's not wrong i don't think she's someone who's going to really step up and and go above and beyond herself i think but i think she's incredibly consistent it's just a question if you can meet or match her and i think the bar that she has set for herself has gone steadily higher over the last two, three years, especially. Yep. And also just the competition around her has not been there. I mean, there hasn't been other women who've been this kind of consistent, like, you know, Sabalenka, for example, who was behind Pagula going into this tournament has been hot and cold. Whereas pegula has been very steady on a very steady burn. So that, you know, that's why she's gotten up to number three in the world. Yeah. She does. She, she isn't going to be the force to hit everyone off the court. And she has a certain level, like you said, that a player, like Azarenka, Azarenka did a good job with Variety and played, I think, a really tactically sound match to keep the ball out of Pagula's comfort area. Um, the conditions were probably not great for Pagula, playing a bit slower at night. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, she's definitely someone... I agree, I agree with you that she... I thought she had a real shot to win this tournament, and I, I still think she did. You know, if you look at who was left, I think she could have beaten Ravakana on the right day, you know, and she could have beaten Sabalenka. Those are matchups that haven't been awful for her in the past. So who knows? But she didn't get it done this time. But Lynette, I don't have too much to say about uh for Virtiva, i would say just the sort of the czech teenagers thing the hashtag various czech teenagers phenomena is very real mm. like there's so many of them and they're all really solid and good and they're going to be around making a lot of noise in the very near future uh for could have beaten vekic could have made quarters they're they're legit it's going to be a real thing with them uh coming on shout out to anyone who hasn't i'm just looking through the draw if you haven't seen camilla Georgie's first round press conference i highly recommend it it was uh tremendous just farce of a situation uh there on her side and uh yeah trying to think if there's anything else before we get to the dudes any any other women you want to talk about
1: i mean you mentioned her i guess lynette just Mm -hmm. career performance not not it wasn't out of nowhere she played well at the end of last year good wins and had good wins at billy jenkins cup but nice. it was just a nice story to see a veteran who's been around for a long time and someone, in particular, someone who, earlier in her career, she was in Radwanska's R- 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 shadow, um, who, who was actually supporting her in, in Australia, and then mm-hmm. and now she, and more recently, she's been in in Triantech's shadow. And well, she she had her moment kind of in the sun, reaching the semis, playing really kind of really good more, more attacking tennis than she ever has done. And and yeah, and, and also just the, um you know, t- two years ago she she was coming to she was planning to go to the australia when she got injured and couldn't make and and pulled out the day before she was supposed to fly to australia and so and she's probably the one of the only people in the world who were watching the 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 players you know in, in quarantine and you know hitting balls against their mattress and was like i wish that was me mm-hmm. and yeah she she had a big moment in australia so kudos to her
0: yeah definitely definitely nice to see her her get through there like i said a surprise result um uh, but yeah she's in the top 20 now so that's a Nice moment for her in the sun. It was not a surprise that there was a Polish player in the semifinals, but it was a big yeah. surprise that it was Magdalenette for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to start the men's conversation actually after, the, after it ends with the scene of Novak Djokovic lying on the floor of his player box for, I don't know how, if it was more than a minute, two minutes, whatever it was, it felt. It was this remarkable sort of scene of catharsis and stuff. And after this tournament where I think he had been Holding a lot in and the men's tournament, I think it felt really flat in a lot of ways, honestly. This was the sort of final release or payoff from this whole sort of journey, you could say, for for two years. And you know, you can think it's remarkable and not and still feel any kind of way about him as it was happening on ESPN. Chris Fowler and John McInerney were debating like how much this was all his fault or not. Like it was still, they were <laughs> still going on about that at the time. Fowler been like, it's his choice. And McInerney like, like, they should have let him play. So, you know, the jury can still be out. There still can be people who feel ways on both sides and him winning doesn't have to change how you feel in either direction. But yeah, just what was that like being there for this ride after we were obviously there together last year, knowing how chaotic it was, what was, what was the Djokovic ride like? And what was it like seeing it, um, seeing it finish that way for him?
1: Yeah. Those tears were obviously, consequence of it seems like just so many different things there's so so many things happening the 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 first obvious thing is, is what happened last year with him being deported and but I should I, I would say that I think he he was obviously quite nervous about how he'd be received by fans and and you know that was a big question mark but it seemed fun enough funnily enough what happened last year really I mean clearly it led to a big reaction from particularly the, the Serbian and Balkan communities and in Australia, who received him extremely well in, in Adelaide, which was quite a crazy atmosphere there. And then same in, in, in Australia, where at least to me it felt like, particularly until in the earlier rounds, so like the, the support seemed as much as it's, it's ever been for him. But I, I think actually, he, I was in, just impressed by how, whether you want to debate about how much of it was his fault, just thought the way he put all of... That those thoughts about last year to the back of his mind and just focused on you know on the moment on on the matches on yeah. you know he 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 wasn't at least you know publicly and I, I believe him actually he, he wasn't like resentful you know he wasn't I don't know he just he he was focused on what he needed to focus on and and that you know served him well for his performances but then obviously it's funny just because we you know that was kind of the, the big question how he he'd follow up what happened last year but there's so many more things that you know, came about this year, P- particularly the injury in Adelaide, the semi-final against um, Medvedev. He hurt his ham- left hamstring. Even in that match, you, you saw Medvedev kind of, you know, take take the mickey and, you know, joke about it to his box. Yeah.
0: Mocking him, yeah.
1: Mock- mocking him, not fully believing that he was, you know, f- f- completely injured or, or at least not fully believing given how well he was still playing. Well, that, that skepticism continued and he admitted that that kind of got to, that affected him, um, and, and that he, you know, he saw some of it, and he didn't like it, and, and so that seemed to be part of the reason why it, why it was so cathartic for him after, because he, he, you know, he went about his business. He he wasn't he didn't train at all, you know, on, on off days through, during the tournament, and he, and he won. And then obviously the other thing was, that, as we discussed, was the his his father, yeah, getting filmed and taking a picture with um, the pro Vladimir Putin.
0: Yeah, I want to save the Putin stuff for a bit later. And and how that relates to to Djokovic, but that obviously was it. It's worth mentioning in terms of the chaos around or the sort of all the stuff going on for sure. But I I want to talk about the injury, if we can just pause there for a second. It's tricky because it happens so much now with Nadal, especially Nadal has this kind of all the time in the background with Nadal and his chronic injuries. Like, how much do we talk about this while they're continuing for the tournament? How much do we meaningfully moderate our expectations of these players and these favorites because of these injuries and Or how much do we just trust they're going to push through Because at a certain point, when they keep winning so much, you know, when, despite having these clouds over them, it can feel kind of silly to doubt them on some level, to doubt their chances. And then that can also, I guess, lead to some people doubting the injuries sometimes. Like, I saw the moment where he got hurt in Adelaide against Medvedev. I believe this was a real injury. You know, how much it was affecting him day to day, only he knows. But there was a lot of different tape on his leg every single day, like three different kinds of tape during that first week. And he said in his post-match press conference, after winning the final, he said, if I turn back the time two and a half weeks ago, I wasn't really liking my chance in this tournament with the way I felt with my leg. Uh, Then it was just a matter of survival every single match trying to take it to the next round. And I agree with that. But at the same time, you know, he was rolling. Like, it was surviving, but he was also winning. With the exception of of the Dimitrov match, I think, where he had a couple tight sets that, had they gone against him, could have made things complicated. And Dimitrov was the player who I thought had the game to possibly beat him unlike uh, Enzo Quaco and Carbaez Bayena, who I think were his two pretty favorable first round first two round opponents even if Cuoco did take the one set off him that he lost but yeah I'm just wondering like more sort of broadly too many like how how should we it's tough in tennis because there's not a lot of transparency from teams about or from tournaments or organized about how injured a player is or not or doctors like it's all held we kind of have to take them at their word and just sort of read signs and read grimaces and limps and tape jobs and stuff like how how should we discuss these things when they're when they're kind of undercurrent of a
1: tournament <laughs> well i, I agree it's, it's difficult you know in, in terms of Djokovic i you know i also didn't you know i, I saw the match and i didn't doubt that he, he you know he he'd suffered an, an injury yeah but to what extent you you, you don't really know after after the tournament um Ivan Garinis the even, even Djokovic coach said that 97% of players would, would have pulled out once if they had the MRI, you know, after seeing the MRI that he had. <laughs> but, yeah, it, but yeah. at the same time, I, as much as I, you know, thought he would, you know, believe that he, he, he was struggling with, with something, it didn't, like, stop me from thinking he would win. As, as long as he yeah. was able to run in, in some capacity, he was the, the favourite. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually not sure. With the top players, we, we've seen... How they've you know won, regardless of the condition they're in, and and regardless of their, their struggles, and you know as uh, you know other players mentioned, and I think v- validly that everyone is struggling with something. Some some players, Djokovic is going is having a press conference every day, and everyone is extremely interested in 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 injuries and what what's happening with his body. Another player who might be injured, but isn't receiving global coverage and, you know, dozens of journalists asking them questions. So we, we've we've seen Djokovic struggle with, with injuries and physical issues and still win. And so, and same with Nadal and, and other players. And so at <laughs> no point, you know, particularly as he progressed and, and things seemed to get better, it, it it didn't stop me from believing that he would win.
0: I want to go back to the crowd you mentioned briefly, too. Like There was this big turnout, as I think everyone expected, who's familiar with Australia at all, of of the Serbian fans. And there's, you know, I think I should parse, because some people i have heard Djokovic fans object to this. I think 90-plus percent of people who come with the Djokovic match with the Serbian flag are ethnically Serbian. I know some Djokovic fans just pick it up as this sort of logo, um, because it's the way people identify in tennis. We'll get to that more later with nationality stuff. But like, beyond the the, those people who were making a lot of noise consistently for him around, you know, at in Bradley arena and around the grounds, like what what would you say was a sort of general temperature of in Australia about, about him coming back? You know, I was curious almost as it was becoming clear in that men's final, just watching and watching the broadcast from home, like when they kept showing some of Djokovic's fans going nuts as he was closing on the win or just being very excited and supportive of him. I almost wanted them to show other people, I always wanted to see like the rest of the crowd to see like yeah. how the sort of more more, let's say neutral or less invested people, less clearly pro djokovic you know, people who came with a flag ready to go for their guy, like what their yeah. reaction was. And so, from you being in the stadium, what was what was that like? To seeing the rest of the the sort of tennis population, the non-affiliated yeah. people, what, how were they receiving and processing Jokovic's return and his and his eventual victory?
1: So, so, so in terms of the crowd reception, it, it seemed like. A bigger proportion of his fans were in in the early, there in the earlier rounds. And so, like his his earlier rounds, he received, you know, the majority of support. Um, but the, the last two rounds, yeah, the semi final against Tottenham Hall and the final, there were surely a lot more tickets sold, maybe sold in advance, you know, more more neutrals and people who wanted to just see a, a slam semi final or final. A much bigger portion of the crowd was for. Um, Djokovic's opponents and in that final you heard them cheering double forwards, cheering between points. I think that, that was a lot of Greek fans as well you know getting in as you, as you said it was kind of a, a, fo- a football soccer type um, atmosphere and, and so they didn't really care about tennis un- unwritten rules and, and all how, how etiquette and, and how crowds should or, or how people believe crowds should act. But I, I, but I do think that at least, just from talking with different people and and just observing, I don't know that Australia is in in a def- very different position compared to last year when when you couldn't enter the country without vaccination and
0: you couldn't enter restaurants without vaccination. Exactly, I mean, like, yeah. they were really yeah. like it was very, everything was very locked down. We had to do daily tests there, yeah. masks all the time indoors. Like again, you had this like sort of thing app on your phone you had to use to check into every time you entered any store anywhere you had to like scan in. It felt it's not that's not anything we ever had in the US during the pandemic. Yeah. So it felt no. very like big brothery to me yeah. being there in the sort of surveillance state that they had going on. Yeah. But yeah, that that is all that is all dissipated now?
1: Exactly. That that's that's not, not the case anymore. It it feels a yeah. lot like how things are in the UK and just the COVID rules and regulations, or most of them, have stripped away. And as we discussed many times, o- Australians are are about rules and the rules have changed, I guess. And so Yeah. Yeah, it, it did seem like a lot of people were willing to just. I'm sure many people had who had strong opinions about Djokovic last year. Maybe it's it's still clouded, just maybe not clouded, but maybe it still affected how they think of him in general. They weren't just there in in that revenge for what happened last year and for him trying to end, you know yeah. trying to enter the country without being vaccinated or whatever. So yeah, it, it wasn't. It was a lot. It was actually a much smaller issue from both Djokovic's side and, and from both. From what I saw and heard from fans, you know what happened last year was a much smaller issue than I anticipated. To be honest,
0: I was saying that I think actually we—I think it was with you—I did the show where before earlier this month where I was just saying I think people are ready to move on. Like I don't think people yeah. want to keep holding gr- grudges over the pandemic still and re-legislating. Yeah. You know the people, the ins and outs, which we got very into. You know learning all about various. Australian cabinet ministers and Alex Hawk and like, you know, different rules about deportation and clauses of deportation and different documents and what, like, that was not fun. Like none of, no one enjoyed any of that. Like you, no matter which side of it you were on, like you don't, and, and I think there were certain people who saw this and maybe Novak a little bit did, even if he didn't say it out loud, you know, but certainly a lot of his fans saw this as his revenge tour in some way. If you want to say that, like, sure. Like if you think it's extra motivation, but like for people who were against him last year, I really, I, I don't really think they had the energy to no. put up much of a, a fight against him this time. And there was, you know, one or two hecklers who popped up at different times in the arena, but nothing nothing significant. Yeah. And and you know, yeah, I think people were ready to ready to, to move on. And so he he did seem like he was obviously less fun and, and less jokey than he has been in the past. Less buoyant and more more game faced kind of the whole tournament seemed like to me a, a bit. I was really struck by that actually when he had the thing where he sort of flubbed thing about Tsitsipas having never been in a Grand Slam final before in one of his press conferences. He didn't like laugh it off. That to me sort of was a read on him just yet yeah, being in this sort of real and real game face kind of mode until the tasks were done. And then I think that sort of release of letting go of that when he finally won is why we saw the catharsis at the end that we did, because he had been sort of keeping a lot um, buttoned up during these two weeks as much as possible. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. a couple other things on Djokovic, one thing I want to get to, a couple different things. I got a text from like a very casual tennis friend about this today, which I thought was interesting. Was someone who really just watched Breakpoint, who was asking um, why there's such a big disparity between Djokovic in Australia and the U.S. Open. And I think now that these numbers are growing further apart, even, it's kind of worth discussing again. These are both two hardcore tournaments. Obviously, right now, you can't enter the U.S. because of the vaccination rules. So it's a different thing. to on these two hardcourt slams. Like, what do you think it is about Australia that makes it so much better than than New York for him? And do you think that gap could narrow in the remaining years of his career? Or will it always just be this one over the other? Because the conditions really are pretty similar in terms of, you know, on court at these two tournaments. But the results have been very, very strong for, for him at one. And then three slams, obviously, is great for almost anybody. But for Djokovic, it's one of his lower columns in his career. Yeah, in New York. So, what do you what do you make of of that? And again, it's what I don't want to focus on. I don't feel like it's a negative. I was you know working this Naomi Osaka book, and once she won her fourth uh, Grand Slam at her second Australian Open, everyone immediately started talking about why she couldn't win on clay and grass. Like it's sort of a natural instinct to sort of focus on what's lower and which which everything is so high. But I am curious now that there is this. I got this question from a friend. Like what? You yeah, yeah. Because yeah. ten to three is a real big, real big disparity.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean it's obvious that he's. You know his hard, hardcore resume across the board and in, in all tournaments is incredible. I mean, one of the reasons I think is, is obvious is, as as I mentioned, just the the support he he receives from the the Serbian and Balkan community in in Melbourne and I don't know. You saw how how Tsitsipas said that Australian Open feels like a home slam for him. May not be that that much of the case for, for Djokovic, but I don't know. There's there's a familiarity and I don't know just. You know, there's something for just going somewhere where you feel good. That's part of it. Obviously, conditions and things have changed a lot over the years. But he, he, he won. Yeah, he won his first Australian Open. Came in the, the first time that the new Plexiglas courts, you know, were laid in, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And and he he you know constantly he, he talked this this year about how, you know the these these current conditions. Uh, should note that he played every match at night. Um, this year, which was yeah. quite remarkable, night conditions with the the heavy the kind of the Dunlop balls that are quite heavy and well, are, after a kind of a couple of games, become very slow and fluffy. They they suit him. It's hard. To, it's very hard to put the ball past him, but he you know he can still do what he wants with them. but they seem to just suit him. So so I, I think it's it's feeling good. I think it's the fact that he he won a lot quickly there and just built up that kind of winning, just that winning mentality and form, whereas it wasn't as easy in the US Open, you know he had some tough battles yeah. with, with Nadal and, you know, there's obviously been a few difficult incidents as well you, you know, you think of most recently when he was um, defaulted uh, That you know, that was obviously yeah. after, you know, even at that point he, he his record in, in Australia was much greater but yeah, I, I don't know, I, I think it's he de- I think, I mean, clearly he prefers the conditions in Australia and it's you know it's it's a dry heat, less humid, I guess. It's
0: the beginning of the year; he's fresher. I think that probably yeah, yeah. with it as well. Yeah,
1: I think it's also just how you feel when you when you go to an event, and this feels to him, this is this is his event. This is the event where you know this is what Ron Gauss is to Rafa, what Wimbledon is to Federer, and and although for Nadal, for example, it Ron Gauss is a lot to do with his clay court dominance and how you know and the surface. But it's also the feeling, right, as um, Alexander's Zverev insists on saying every year that he's a better player at Roland Garros than he is at, at other tournaments. And I think that's other clay court tournaments. And I think that's kind of similar with um, Djokovic where, you know, he's at his best at the Australian Open period Yeah, on that court, not just the conditions. Not, not just one yeah, thing.
0: It's probably the same thing with like Venus Williams Wimbledon, you know, like it's not just the low bounce and speed. It's just everything about the place and the history and their own personal history there too. Right. So Jokovic just found these early, strong, great memories. I think he played yeah. his first ever main draw slam there against yeah. Roth Safin yeah. way back. And then exactly. obviously won his first slam there. And like, so yeah, so those positive feelings. Those can, those seeds can be planted pretty early for Novak. That makes sense. One other thing I want to touch on more big picture for men's tennis for getting to a couple other stories from the, the draw this stat I was looking up again, but just reminded when I sort of parsed it out. At the Australian Open, French Open, and Wimbledon, there has still not yet been a men's singles champion born after 1987. 1987 was a long time ago. No joke, we was just turning 36 this year. Andy Murray, also born in 87, as was Sharapova, Ivanovic. who are both retired for a while now. I was born in 87. Like, there, there's, uh, you know, it's a remarkable year in tennis, I guess if you want to say. But, like, since then, nothing at three of the four slams. There have been five champions to the, uh, at the U.S. Open uh, born after that. Del Potro, Chilich, Medvedev, Team, and Alcaraz. But nothing at these three, which is still, obviously, the majority of the, sl- the slams. And what's it going to, like, why, it, what does it say about the field? They still can't beat these guys. Even Djokovic with his super taped up hamstring and demons and whatever else like it's still so comfortably ahead of the field when it gets to the business end of this tournament winning these late round matches with such ease and really all matches with such ease like what does it say about what what is happening here it gets kind of more ridiculous the longer it goes in a certain extent right it's not normal
1: yeah yeah so firstly i'd say that the, the person i blame is your birthday twin jared pk who was also <laughs> born in, in 1987 and and yep. you know we can blame him for many things but seriously um um, on one hand, I, I think Djokovic is this good. Yes, he's thirty-five years old. Yes, he's he's old or whatever. Same with Nadal. Yes, they're old, but like <laughs> the the level he's playing at is is still incredible, and and still you know he's still so good. And you know, <laughs> regardless, he's better. That he's a better tennis player than these guys. He would you know that's just clear. He's just much better. But I think what what really just struck me and uh, kind of irked me. This year, it's just that a, a, a lot of that wave of next gen just seems to have kind of dissipated. If you know, Medvedev has got to number one and was you know incredibly good in at, at the slams, but now he's going through a tough, you know, just a more difficult period. He could easy, easily bounce back from that and, and 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 you know contend again, but you yeah. know he he was he was clearly not a threat in any way. Then you have you, know, you just have other other players who just going through the issues or, or just not, not, Zverev, at the if level you there. want to mention Zverev, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. it's
0: way off right now. Yeah. Like he, I mean, obviously, he's coming back from his injury, but that match, that loss to Michael Moe was pretty dire.
1: And so, so, yeah, he's coming back from injury and he's just, yeah, as you said, way off. And so, Tsitsipas did very well. He, he he was the favorite to reach the final from in the top half from, you know, very early on. And, and he won most matches convincingly. You know, the one time he had a bit of a blip against Kachanov in the semi final you know, he, he bounced back immediately, but he didn't have any big clash that you'd expect f- for someone reaching a second Sam final. <laughs> when, when you think a few years ago of, of like, team having to, like, take down Djokovic in five sets at Ron and Garros in, in yeah. to, you know, in in, in a hurricane, <laughs> and you can compare it to how slam draws are now, and, and not just not just Sissipas, you know, for example, Kachanov making the semi-final and you know, he again. He's he's doing extremely well. Two consecutive two consecutive semifinals. He you know beat Kyrgios at the last one in a great match. He's also hasn't beaten a top ten player since I think twenty nineteen.
0: Yeah, since he's like he's an incredible losing streak against the top ten. Yeah. It's like zero twenty two. Yeah, against top ten players, it's it's ridiculous. In that, in that for period, who's yeah, not a bad player.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so like it's I don't know, it's definitely a, a, a weird, a strange period in, in men's tennis at the moment. Djokovic has is is still just. You know, just dominating as he did. Nadal, Nadal's main issue has been injuries, not 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 the quality of the field. You know, catching up with him It's the fact that he
0: yeah.
1: he um, injured his abdominal muscle at, before the semis of Wimbledon and just hasn't recovered. More things keep on ha- piling up on top of that. Yeah, it, it's definitely in a, in a strange spot at the moment, and at least to me, as as everything seems to just reinforces how 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 good these guys are. Where, where they don't have these. They don't have these blips. When when they've they've had injuries, yet yeah, they most of the time they return to a top level quickly. They've been so consistently great for so long, every year, it's, almost every year they win like eighty percent of their matches. Whereas most players, you know, very few players have done that in one season. And this, yeah, it, the 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 consistent level is just, you know, yeah, there's just a big gulf between. Them and, and the rest, and these more years pass, the the clearer it is that despite how much hype you know the younger players get, they're not at that level. And and obviously I should say like, there's, let's not forget that Carlos Alcaraz, who was world number one, was, was injured, and you know he he'll, he'll be back, and he had an incredibly exciting year last year. Interesting to see, you know, Holger Rune's, Rune's um his his loss to his fourth round loss to um. Uh, Andre Rublev was pretty bad, you know. That was not a, that was not a good match at all, and he had he had match yep. points and lost in in a fifth set tiebreak <laughs> on like the just most brutal net called ever. I think he's you know the fearlessness he showed at the end of last year against Djokovic is, is also worth noting, particularly in going into the clay season. The next gen players are still there, of course, but I'm certainly like just very interested at the moment to see what the the next 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 gen the younger guys. If they can like maintain the fearlessness they showed last year, or 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 if or yeah. not, so I think that's definitely yeah. one of the the big questions for the rest of the season.
0: Yeah, Alcaraz, I think his absence was really felt. I think I, he would have changed this tournament's complexion a lot had he been in the field and been healthy. As the U.S. Open champion, as this breakthrough guy, missing him here, I didn't think yeah. it was a big hole for the men's men's draw for sure. Uh, one person I don't think we mentioned there is was Casper who came into this tournament as the number two seed and lost pretty meekly. In the second round, he made the U.S. Open final and the French Open final, and he delivered kind of nothing and and got kind of schooled at various points by Jensen Brooksby in the second round of the tournament there. So that was another sort of person who didn't quite follow up. And Felix Asim, another guy who's in the mix, who had a disappointing, I think, loss to Yerzy Lahetschka in the fourth round of the tournament as well. Taylor Fritz, also someone else, you know, who lost second round uh, to Alexey Popperin. Popperin, I felt like really... Like, kind of treat out of his mind i think fritz as of those people i just named i think did the least poorly in his loss actually from the matches i saw um i think he just ran into some guy playing like the best match of his life uh you know in home at home conditions and those things can happen i guess so i'm the least sort of worried about fritz of, the- of that group we just mentioned nori also you can mention nori someone else is in the mix with an early defeat also to a um, no. tournament. um and i don't know why John McEnroe was acting like he didn't know who Lechka was during the men's final. He was like, who? When Lechka's name got brought up as the quarterfinal opponent for Tsitsipas. <laughs> I don't know who that helps. I don't know why that's getting employed and getting put on the air. It deserves to everybody involved. Yeah, it's, you know, the other stories are, are not there. Tsitsipas, I obviously talked a bunch about Rabakina, uh in the men, women's side. I don't have much to say about Tsitsipas here. I think he kind of just sort of did what he was supposed to do in every match. The, the center match, we've seen there have some close calls. That was obviously a big possibility for center. Um that could have changed Herman a lot had center won that match. But he it didn't. Um and so Sitzabas so kinda of rolled to the second final without doing anything too meaningful. Actually I was almost more impressed by his doubles, where he and Petros nearly beat the number one seeds, uh, Kulhoff and Skopsky in the second or third round. Seeing Petros do things. Very exciting to me. So that was that was kinda of fun to see that match. Watched a bunch of that match.
1: On Sisabas just I guess the one the one thing that I just think was was impressive was just his mental strength in, in that match against um, Sinner when when he he was he had been up two sets and he got dragged back into a fifth set and, and by the fifth set Sinner was you know just striking the ball uh, you know going into the fifth set he was striking the ball really cleanly like on top and but Sizapas just you know just he he was there like mentally I think he he faced so many something like twenty two break points or something something crazy like that but then in the in the third set he just tightened everything up had one chance and, on Cinder serve and took it, and then didn't face another break point for, and served incredibly. And that was just, you know, it was certainly he, he had, you know, his run was, it was not spectacular. He didn't face a top 10 opponent, but just just to see him, you know, go through that, show his mental strength, better, better temperament than, before, than his issues in the past. Yeah, I, I think, I, I definitely think it was a, a very positive tournament for him, even though he didn't have to topple Rafa Nadal or anyone and and it bodes well for like the rest of the year that he still has you know limitations were quite glaring at times in in Djokov- in the Djokovic match for example like the back end even though he he didn't hit forehand well a lot of the time like the back end just you know it doesn't hold up yeah and obviously his return of serve and things like that but yeah it's definitely a positive very 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 positive tournament for him and he should be in the mix on on clay not to, not to win the title but i mean if if he isn't if he can't make a deep run and if if he isn't stopped by some Nadal or Alcaraz or Djokovic then he has to be disappointed
0: I think since is in the title mix and in, in Paris I and mean, why not I mean like yeah for sure you know made it to finals in Rome and, and he's won Monte Carlo twice like he can do it like I mean he you know that's the thing about his tournament also like the tennis wasn't spectacular but you're right the mental side of it of not letting any of those sort of moments of being less than spectacular really break him um I think was 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 more impressive on but yeah but he was he had a favorable draw and just kind of took care of business a lot actually to segue that's what a lot of the american men did uh to who also made it deep in this tournament tommy paul who made the semifinals uh, for the first time after making it i think he hadn't made a fourth round of a slam before i believe w- wimbledon um, at his first qu- wimbledon okay so but hadn't made a quarterfinal or semifinal no. semi-final run he played batista gut and david were the two seeds he played he played in the court. He played ben shelton who was someone who's been kind of a hipster pick in American men's tennis circles for many months now. Shelton beat a very unheralded group of people, but still won four rounds at this Grand Slam, beating, you know, uh, Zhang Zhizhen, Nicholas Jari, Paparin, and J.J. Wolf uh, to make the quarterfinals. It does not feel like a slam draw, necessarily, but... He did it, and and he was there. And also Sebastian Corda was the third American man in the quarterfinals. So three Americans in the quarterfinals. Also, Americans knocked out the top two seeds separately. Mackie McDonald knocked out uh, Rafael Nadal, who had an injury midway through, but Mackie was already winning that match, uh, knocked out of straight sets. And then I mentioned already Jensen Brooksby beating Casper Rude. So I can tell you in the U.S. there was a lot of excitement about Ben Shelton especially and the sort of story about him having never made a trip outside the U.S. before this uh, trip in his sort of background and being a college player, there's lots of, like, excitement about Shelton, for sure. And obviously the Paul result was good, too. He was the first American man in the semifinals of Australia since 2009, I believe, when Andy Roddick did it. Korda had played well. Korda had the bigger wins of these people. He beat Medvedev, uh, who was last year's finalist, in the third round, and then beat her catch in a fifth set tiebreak in the fourth round before going down with a wrist injury. And it's off in the third set of that quarterfinal. But I'm curious for you what you made of this sort of American crop and if that did feel meaningfully different to have three Americans in the last eight of this of this field and how you sort of see it from an international perspective.
1: I must say I'm I'm definitely not as as much in the camp the the weird um was it yeah, I think it was Djokovic who was asked by like the, the uncle interview or, or someone, you know, tennis needs Americans. That <laughs> that's a bit much much for me, I must say. Okay. But the, the impressive thing is just how the American players have clearly just spurred each other on. We you, you, so, you see it with kind of which no no they're not really the young generation anymore, but kind of the the mid mid aged generation of you know Fritz and TFO and Paul and 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 those players who clearly you know Paul sees TFO making a final, knows that knows how how he can play against TFO knows he's beaten TFO in the past or you know even even just in practice and knows. Okay, I can do that too. I think you've really seen the way they've um, just come up together, and 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 now you have a, an either, even younger generation, you know, beyond them who who are also kind of taking from that energy as well. There's a lot now. I think what there's like I think ten of the top fifty is, is American yeah. now, which is crazy.
0: The top fifty is twenty percent American.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and that's a lot. Yeah, and again, like that, there are. I think, I do like also that there's just a lot of different styles now. You know, there was a time when, I don't know, you, you thought of American tennis and it was, you know, big serve, big forehand, not very good, well, crap backhand. let's be honest. <laughs> and not very, I don't know, just, it wasn't, it didn't seem fun, but I, I do like that there's just a lot of different styles that like you, you can watch a, you can watch a TFO or you can watch a Brooksby and they're just very different types of players. Yeah, I'm very interested in in because Tinkles. are right. His, his the run of the run of players he beat is not what you'd associate with a quarter final or either, like <laughs> that that's a low 250 even you know.
0: Yeah. It's an off-year Delray Beach run in some ways, yeah. but he <laughs> but he did it.
1: Yeah. But just the entire concept of, you know, leaving the US for the first time and just making a quarter of final off the bat is quite insane. He's he obviously has a potentially a huge game and also like like not to 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 quote um uh Djokovic to, to sisipass um an interesting personality um <laughs> he, he, but, but he just seemed like very I like... felt
0: so loaded when, when, when Djokovic, <laughs> that, was, too, yeah. by the way yeah. I was not sure how much interesting was a compliment there but yeah. yeah
1: and you repeated it yeah but Shelton just seems like a ball of like energy right and and oh, yeah! It, it seems very like contagious, and someone who could like really rally a lot of fans if if he's able to, um, you know, if, if he's if he's able to really break through and continue to rise. And he he turned pro, I think, in August after he beat Kasper Rude in Cincinnati, um, and he's already shown so much in terms of what he's done in the challenges and now Slam level. And I think that just both that's that's something that people should be very excited about. I'm not sure if. I'm not sure if there's a, the next grandson champion among these even though there's so many Americans, there's there's clearly like a number of players who could be top ten, even push for top five. They'll continue to push each other, I think, to to, to get up there. So
0: I I think Shelton has the biggest has the biggest upside of I, any I of think these so Americans. Too, yeah. Just like he's a big, strong lefty. It's actually like, I think he actually is on paper pretty similar to Jack Draper in a lot of ways, in terms of similar prospects, in terms of their games. He's obviously a little bit bigger and stronger. Shelton, the serve is better than Draper's, but similar sorts of ingredients, and they're trying to fill different niches. And if Draper had made a quarterfinal here, it would have been unsurprising based on his recent form. Obviously, he drew Nadal first round, uh, which made it tough. But yeah, Shelton, there's a lot of excitement for him. I think the upside for him is really big, and it's just kind of cool seeing someone go this very different route that wasn't playing the full junior circuit and that also will obviously come with a lot of you know growing pains and, and learning curve because on both sides for both him and the tour behind him there's very very little data there was very very little data on him out there and like matches he's played for people to go watch but now there's more data on him people are figuring things will figure things out more and there will be more of a book on how to play ben shelton and his weaknesses will be more known by the tour uh, pretty quickly and then also he's never so because he's never left the U.S. he's never played on grass I don't think or maybe like Newport I don't think he played I don't think he's ever played on grass or clay that I can think of
1: so you <laughs> know you, he's he's, he's, the, he's the American Emma that's what he is yeah
0: exactly so um, he's he's yeah it's exactly that not quite the slam title but in terms of doing things out yeah. of order in your career yeah. he Shelton has that for him but yeah he's a super super nice kid very and as I said, very contagious, a lot of energy on court, which is very college. Danielle Collins also an NCAA champ. has a little bit of that same sort of shouty, fighting at times. She's mellowed out a bit in her time on tour, but yeah, Shelton brings that that energy, and he's someone who you know is getting the crowd really fired up in this match against J.J. Wolf and and John Kane Arena to very little known opponents, but they you know put on a crowd pleasing match in the end. So
1: I will say though, just in terms of putting putting on the show for a crowd, it seems like clear to me that more and more players are like directly you know physically asking the crowd to cheer you know doing those kind of you know hyping the crowd up signs it's become more and more common on the tour I, I don't know it's, it's not even it's not something that irritates some people but it's just it's not not necessarily irritates me it's just interesting to see how like behaviors from a couple of pros becomes more and more common and players copy and see and turn on any match and there's someone like trying to, you know, physically, like, trying to conduct the crowd, almost, which is just interesting development.
0: Let me talk about one player last tournament I want to talk about who did that a lot in Melbourne. Not a new player, but Andy Murray, sure, was having a lot of fun <laughs> with the crowd at the Australian <laughs> Open, especially in that late-night match against Kalkanakis, and obviously in the match against Batista Gut in the third round as well. Andy Murray really was the heartbeat of the tournament for the first week. I think the tournament was really pretty boring in a lot of ways, honestly, except for Andy Murray for the first you know, honestly, arguably, on court, I think, until the women's final, really. um, Murray was it and and Murray delivered, and it was just cool to see him him doing that, you know, so many years after his purported retirement uh, there. Um I'm curious what it was like for you as obviously a Brit, you know, signed Murray Watcher seeing Andy put on this kind of show and and, you know, look, he was in that quarter the draw the tie Paul came out of, and then people really thought he had a if he'd been able to have less wear and tear. In the first two matches, I think he could have made that semifinal, potentially. Yeah. Like he, he was playing pretty well. But he had he had to be, he had a tough draw in that section because he did beat Berrettini first, which was a real, yeah. real, real feat out of the yeah. gate.
1: The, the funny thing is that, you know, he, he played so well in that Berrettini match. So, so, so Murray, Murray had arrived, you know, last year Murray spent a lot of time saying that he needed to improve his ranking because he was getting all these tough draws and, and you know he wanted to be seeded so he'd avoid a player like Berrettini, but it was like very kind of from before the tournament after the draw. Like his his attitude was clearly different. He just 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 he he was more confident that he could that you know with with that that first round draw. He he's he said he he'd been in Florida and just spent like three weeks just training. He had no you know a couple years ago he he got COVID during the offseason and I don't know he just. Finally, had like a period of like just hard training and with nothing else, and you know, he, and it was clearly it was reflected in how he played in, in in just the way he was striking the ball and his confidence and his movement. And against Berrettini, he he played that was such a high quality that that you know I you know just from seeing how confident he was, I I expected you know more more quality than in previous years, but he played really well for five sets and. Berrettini, after you, know, after going down two sets, Berrettini, as he you, you'd expect from such a good player, he he came back and they played a really really high quality third set. Murray, Murray had his chances in, in the third set tiebreak, and and then Murray had break point chances at the beginning of the full set, and that ended with Berrettini having a, a match point and in the. Probably the worst back end any anyone will hit in, in this, this season. Hmm. Like he, he had Murray stranded at the net, just had to slot the back end past him, hit the back end in the bottom of the net. I still cannot believe it. But it was it was just a, but still Murray like re- re- recovered and then won and it was a really good win. But as you said, if if he'd been he, he was playing at a high enough level to take that match earlier, to, to win it in either three or four sets. And and I think if he'd done that. He it would have been a completely different tournament for him, you know. After that five sit match, then he started really slowly against Okinakis and had to drag himself back. And then by the third match, he was his back was gone basically. But, but and so, so five
0: a.m. finish against yeah, too. Gosh, yes. Before so
1: a.m. I finish, I finished finish working at seven a.m., which is not great, you know. When you start working no. at eleven or ten to eleven, ten or eleven a.m. the the previous day. So, but yeah, so so, so I think Murray left with great news and you know so, something to work towards he's, he's, he's playing much better than the past few years it, I think the one big thing is that his hip has settled, his body was adjusting to having a, met, a metal hip and you know, playing top level sport with it but now it seems like it's settled and that seems to be the least of his problems really mm. um, so he can clearly play you know, high level tennis but you you you, you 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 if we we saw how Djokovic he he had a he had a physical ailment and he did the best thing he could have done, which is winning every match in straight sets. Obviously, you can't expect that from Murray at this point. But if if Murray wants to, Murray still believes he can make deep runs. And and as you said, it it was clearly reali- realistic that he could have made a deep run in, in this slam if he was you know in better shape. But he, if if he wants to, he has to no longer be the the Andy Mar- typical Andy Murray who gets dragged into you know long crazy matches and maybe takes the scenic route and you know he, he has to be efficient and that's the big question i think if he can continue to play as he as he did which was a lot more attacking you know taking on his forehand so much more than he has done in a long time but also be efficient and keep uh, keep your body in good enough shape to, to last through a tournament so yeah it, i, I just the one last thing sorry this is a lot on a lot on Andy Murray, but <laughs> but I I think it's just this this at the start of this year I was it seemed like make very much make it or break it either you know either he showed that he showed to himself that he, there was room for improvement and that he he was progressing or if he just continued to stagnate like just just in that just in or outside of the top 50 making a couple of in you know making a couple he made it two finals last year and otherwise you know what couple one third round and otherwise lost in the second round of of many tournaments but this seems that like he le- I think he left Melbourne with more hope that he's he's improved at and that he can make deep runs and so that was I think that will sustain him I think he has something to you know a goal for you know until well the, the end of the year, really, and and where and then he can see where he is. Then it was a very positive tournament for him, and 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 as you said, also just very just thrilling and dramatic and crazy and ridiculous. Even that third third match against Batista Agut, where he was clearly not feeling it and couldn't really serve, but still brought the drama in full. And I must say, I, I don't think he made many friends. He he used the crowd so much and knew that if he he raddied the crowd, then it would get into the opponent's head. And I don't think Bautista was a big fan of him for that. And apparently some players weren't crazy about it. You know, watching in the locker room, weren't a fan of it either. But you, know, you, you, you have to win. You, you, he's there to win. And fair enough. He, he did what he, he could.
0: Like, look, like you got to be, if you're, if you're, I get that because he was, I think you were sort of saying this a little bit. You talked about the, I segue way to him through the rally in the crowd segue, like, you know, people get it can feel thirsty. You can get a little annoying. It's not very Tennessee, tennis etiquette, sort of typical reserved thing to do to be make some noise kind of crowd pumping up thing. But with Andy, it's Andy Friggin Murray, man. Like, I mean, like, he's, you know, like, he's a legend of the sport in this way. And he's also getting people to care and to react in ways other people don't. And this tournament also, speaking of uh, Alcaraz not being there, the other big hole from the tournament was not having Kyrgios, who was a huge part of this tournament's marketing and plan and was the big breakout Australian star and that was a major marketing loss for the tournament because of how much they've centered around Kyrgios and Australian tennis uh, in the last you know, six months, especially since his Wimbledon final. So Murray was the guy putting on a show and you need that for the sport. Uh, but it doesn't help him in terms of, yeah, like he's not Djokovic. Djokovic, uh, Andrea Pekovic, I know he saw an interesting tweet uh, in the last 24 hours or so after the men's final, just talking about how Djokovic's game is hard to define because he can change so much and adjust constantly and, not really a clear hallmark to it. Murray doesn't have that. Murray has not been able to transform his game in this stage of his career to be a different kind of more attacking player. Like if Murray could go out there and play, almost remember like when Justin Enning came back in 2010 and was kind of a ball basher, like was really keeping things short. Like if Murray could have tried to do that, I don't know if he has, it feels like he can do that, but that could have really changed his stage of his career to try to go for that kind of real overhaul of his game. Um, anyway, should get moving on. There's a lot more to cover here that I wanted to cover. A couple other topics. Speaking of uh, Sitsipas, actually, I wanted to transition to. One of the reasons I think Sitsipas might have done well this tournament, in terms of mentally especially, you could say, is the coaching. The, there was, for the first time, there was this really fluid, all coaching allowed thing at a slam. And it felt more – I know it happened at the US Open also, but it felt more foregrounded of this Australian Open. I know if they were showing them more players, just the way the courts are set up. Um, it just felt like it was a bigger part of the tournament for sure, and you know the kind of constant conversations are happening with with coaches, and we obviously know how much Apostolos Apostol talks to his son during matches, and as you know, there were reconnaissance missions run by Ava Zdraky to intercept those communications during last year's semifinal. But with uh, this year, I'm curious what you made of that rule change, and I do want to. I'll get into Stefano Vukov after that, but we, before we get into him specifically, um, who's Zdraky's coach, what you made of this rule change. It's kind it of be done, I think, ostensibly for entertainment purposes. It's not really clear what the reason behind it is, if it's enfor- lack of enforcement, which I think is a bad reason to change the rule, honestly. A really bad reason to change a rule, um, especially when you've laid off so many line judges who could be helping to police the court if need be. I don't know if it made it more entertaining, per se, because you can't hear the coaches, but at the same time, at United Cup, you could hear them. And then there was like that one match where Tim Hemman didn't shut up. <laughs> and it really annoyed everybody in that in that uh I think it was a Swan Keys match, I wanna say. So I don't know, it, it does feel like it's meaningfully changing the flavor. So if I thought Chris Clary had a nice sort of catch all piece about how much this changed, uh sort of looking back at this twenty twenty three Australian up and through the lens of the coaching change. Uh, but what do you think about this? And because and, it is a it's a pretty profound change for the sport and how how matches are, are played and contested.
1: Yeah. it's funny because obviously before Covid women's tennis in the dub tier matches had uncle coaching where coaches would come on they'd be mic'd up they had to speak in English which is I think is rightfully controversial in itself so, well no they didn't have to speak oh, they didn't English, have
0: so, to do that they didn't have to yeah do
1: that. so I, I was mixed I was getting mixed up with um next gen when when they did have to speak in English but yeah we, yeah they, they they um came they came on and you could hear you know the conversations it's just it is it is funny that they they seem to have while bringing in coaching into tennis they've settled on the least like interactive way f- for the audience you know for the audience you you can hear some things but not really much and yeah not much. It's, it's not very it's not helpful for gaining an insight for someone from from the audience as a spectator it's not helpful for gaining insight into what what is actually being said and tactics and you know the mental set of the player so I don't know how helpful it is for the fans um but it, certainly players have used it and it it definitely changes the flavor of tennis matches and when when you see you know that's just, so I think the, the rule is that you can only really t- you can only interact back and forth when you're on, on the same side you can't and you also can't you know there, there was I, f- I forgot who but there was a player who you know that the game had finished and they went to pick up their towel and they were j- just like talking to the, their coach and they got shut you know the umpire shouted at them and told them to you know get their butt back to their chair basically yeah
0: there's this ridiculous rule like you can you can talk but you can't have a conversation like, yeah there's these like weird gray areas and they yeah. just don't seem so seem very clear or sustainable
1: yeah yeah, it, it's it's just it is certainly just weird and striking just to see i don't know when when i was injured him having him going over to his team and having the back and back and forth and looking you know really you know like just really upset and and Expressing that to his team, and I, I definitely, you know, and I know some people don't don't like it, but I I do kind of get the the image that some people have of tennis as being for, for yourself, and you know, you go out on the court, and it's it's all down to you. That hasn't been the reality for some time, obviously, because coaches are have always often you know tried to give signals or commands, and umpires haven't haven't seen a lot of the interactions. But yeah, I'm 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 not I'm not really a fan of, of how it is right now. I, I don't think it's no it it's helpful to the players that they can at least interact in some way. But as a spectator you don't gain anything from it. So
0: I don't think it demonstrably made the matches higher quality to have no. the players sort of have this extra voice in their ears and not that any way we could do it. even if, even if it is like sort of moving more chess pieces tactically around the board more quickly, it kind of balances out because both players have coaches. And then also like I don't like, you know, the case. Maybe some player won't have a coach, and they could be at a disadvantage during a match. Yeah, you know, like what if Kyrios famously doesn't have a coach? Like what if some uh, that was a real two on one thing? Obviously, it's his choice. And there's other players who don't have coaches for economic reasons, for they're down the, the ranks. Uh, most players in the main job of a grand slam will have a coach with them for sure. But yeah, it, it's sort of a it's it's I don't I don't need I didn't need it. I think the reason for doing it is really bad that just not be able to enforce it. I think that's a really terrible reason to change a, a rule or a law in general. Yeah, when it was done for a. a Incredible reasons, so I'm not a big fan of it. And the other thing is, and this will get to what I the specific incident or you know issue I want to talk about is that it puts a lot more attention on these people, these coaches, and their relationships with the players and how they interact with each other. The coaches were getting a lot more camera time. It felt like because they were constantly, a lot of them are talking a lot. Particularly Stefano Vukov, who was the coach of Elena Rybakina, and there were a lot of commentators from all over, specifically former female player commentators, who were very critical of Vukov during the tournament on various different broadcasts. Like Laura Robson on the world feed was really ripping him pretty hard just for how she was talking and how much she thought he was annoying Robachna or just how unhelpful it was probably being. Roberto Vinci on Italian TV was apparently doing the same thing saying just like, I don't understand how Robachna doesn't fire him. And then most notably Pam Shriver, Pam Shriver who's been on sort of a, a mission uh, in the last less than a year now, but for, since the middle of last year, after coming through with her own story about her relationship with her coach during her early days in the tour, um, which turned into a sexual relationship, and she says it's harmful to her. She's been really interested in sort of trying to regulate and improve these player-coach relationships. And she tweeted, I think during the final, she said, as I watched Rubakina try to win her second major in seven months, I hope she finds a coach who speaks and treats her with respect at all times and does not ever accept anything less, which was a pretty direct call out of of Vukov. And there was some pushback from from this, from Dmitry Tursinov, who's another tour coach notably, who said she was trying to vilify random people, also called Vukov the person solely responsible for Rubakina's success, which I thought was a bit much. And then after the tournament... Uh, Rebecca put out a statement on Instagram, uh, sort of notes app statement that was on her account, in which, and we don't know if she wrote this herself, I will point out. She said, after a great AO, I've seen, or her statement reads, after a great AO, I have seen some disturbing comments on social media about the behavior of my coach, Stefano Vukov. I want to clarify any misinterpretations. Stefano has believed in me for many years before anyone else did. We plotted a strategy together and how I could achieve great things. And his method shows in my grand slam success so far. He is a passionate coach with a lot of knowledge about tennis. my people that are making these comments, he is a great, he has great knowledge about me as a person and as an athlete. Those who know me well will know that I would never accept a coach that didn't respect me and all our hard work. I may be quiet on court in general, but inside me is a competitive athlete that wants to achieve great things and Stefano has helped me greatly in this way. So please disregard any fake news to the contrary. That's how the statement ends. So some people reacted to this like, aha, case closed. She said it's not an issue, so it must not be an issue. Or her Again, I don't know that she wrote this herself. That's If I was honest, if I was Vukov, that's exactly the statement I would write about how great Vukov is. I don't know. I don't know what's exactly going on here from from the team I have not... Talk to them directly, but I do think it's an interesting case, and and I sort of enumerated the people complaining about him on air. But I know Tumani and we're aware of there have been lots of complaints about this guy for a while. And I know you've had your own sort of observations of, of Fukov working working with Ribaikina.
1: Um, yeah, the interactions you both seen Ribaikina's uh, matches and previous matches and training. In, in my opinion, it it doesn't look great. Let's say uh, he, he's extremely animated and extremely intense, and. It, you know, during matches, he's, you know, shouting and putting his head in his hands and just very loud and... he's
0: really negative. Really very
1: negative. negative, yeah. Very negative. And it's the big contrast between her, given how quiet and, and reserved she is. Uh, I, and, you know, you, you, you at the bare minimum, given how many different places it's coming from, this should really be for Vukov, and I think, in my opinion... It should be something to reflect on how you how you you speak to your pupil. You can be energetic and animated without being so negative and and in that way. And, and as we know from actually from the the previous uncle coaching, you know, when, when coaches would come on, it, it it's the, the image of an older male coach, and he's not that much older, by the way. He's Vukov I think is I think he's thirty years old. Yeah. The the image of a, a male coach um talking to a just, just the way they interact with, with their female players can be very uncomfortable. And I think this is one that was... You, you mentioned, you know, I'd have observations. And, you know, what one story I, I shared with, with Ben in the past, with you in the past, was that um, it was at Eastbourne uh, when rebakina you know, was actually training with uh, Bublik. And after, you know, hitting with him, she started to return his serve. And obviously, Bublik has one of the biggest serves in, in the men's game. And she was... It wasn't. Yep. It wasn't easy. She, you know, returned a couple, couldn't return another. But after every serve, you just saw Vukov just like sprint to the baseline and like take taking her racket and showing her how to return and barking in instructions and this and that. And she was clearly getting a bit annoyed and flustered. And on the other end, you could see that you know Publik saw that. And 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 towards the end of the and it went on for a while. And I was just you know it was not it was not enjoyable to watch. But it, I was just stay, you know. I couldn't stop watching it because it was, yeah, it, it was not a good look. And then at the end, Bublik said, "Why don't you return my serve to to Vukov?" And he got Vukov to return. You know, he served maybe like five serves at Vukov, five aces, and then, mm-hmm. as with jokingly he he said something like, "You know, Le- leave the girl alone. You know, don't put pressure on the girl." He was he was you know yeah. he was laughing, but there was a point there, and you just. Again, like this one thing bringing energy to someone, this one thing trying to make them animated and being that animator for someone. If, if a player, if, if they're not naturally inclined to be that way themselves, but there's a way to talk to to athletes, to people, to women, and and when so many different people are, you know, responding negatively to it, I think it's that should be something to reflect on, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and maybe it didn't come off from Pam's Sweet, but and I was trying to show the other voices there. Much as it seems like she might be, you know, making assumptions going out on a limb, this is very much something that is in the conversation around Vukov and Rubakina. Especially, as she's come into prominence since the Wimbledon win, and even before that, because Eastbourne was obviously before that. There, there are, yeah, people, people. There are whispers about this. There is concern about this. There's people who think it's not good, and it's a tough thing about tennis with the independent contractor sort of model. Like, there's very little room to regulate these player-coach relationships, and to even sort of second-guess them publicly. Was was rare and was something, you know, that 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 her team at least pushed back on from Rebecca in this moment. Again, I don't know how much to assign to to her to that. And also it's just tough because you can look at a a pairing or relationship, if you want to call them that, and sometimes they are both in these I don't know about Rebecca and Vukov, honestly, but and see things that make you uncomfortable and just that you wanna, you know, criticize on tour and whether it's certainly fathers and daughters is a very common dynamic in women's tennis or people who are dating or even just not just an age difference of different men and women, or even if it's two women, I mean, like it's, or even on the men's tour, like these, you can have these relationships on coaching that just seem fraught and it can feel different, you know, on the other side and you can see things like I had, people might remember, gosh, I don't know what year it was like 2015 or so, pretty early on in 2016. There was a moment, I remember I was watching an, a match from Stanford and uh, Allison Risk was playing, I think Carlos Suarez Navarro and her boyfriend who is now her husband who is serving as her coach, Stephen Armitage, came out and we had a coaching visit, and it ended, you know, and they were sort of arguing with each other. And at some point, like Steven said, like like shut the fuck up like in the middle of conversation, like on you know live mic on camera. And for me watching, it, it was like yikes! This is like just a very uncomfortable dynamic to be seeing, you know, this player get spoken to this way in a match. And yeah, some t- certainly lots of coaches curse and stuff like that in in pro sports. That's not unusual. But just in this moment, it felt weird and I said said something like this wasn't a great look for encore coaching you know sort of in this sort of often uncomfortable dynamics this is one of them and, and Risk was very upset about that comment from me she said you know like this is just my boyfriend coaching me and helping me get a great win today because she wound up beating winning the match over Suarez Navarro which was, was a good win for her you know so it's tough to judge other relationships and this has been a long running problem for women's tennis you know like how much privacy and autonomy are players and coaches entitled to when people on the outside, even close observers, you know, people who see players and coaches together at hotels, you know, in the lobbies and in, in transport all the time together, who get a decent amount of stuff. How much can you intervene or interrupt or not? And like Elena Dokić, I think it's the biggest example of this in terms of. And obviously, she's still there at the Australian Open. So I was thinking about her this week. She was famously traveling the tour with for years, and showed this in her book with her dad, who was abusive to her. And people on the tour very much suspected this and knew or knew about it somewhat more affirmatively. And felt like they were really limited in what they could do to try to separate them because she was not accepting of the interventions that were, or the overtures that were made at that time. So it's just, it's just tough. And this goes to sort of safeguarding conversations, this kind of popular buzzword in tennis, like, yeah, like it's, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing to know how much these things can be intervened on or not. But I did just want to sort of stick up for Pam a little bit, just say, to say that she was not going completely out on a limb here, there was a there is a chorus of sort of concern, which plays out of different times about Vukov and about other players in general. And and again, only the two of them know, and it's possible that Rakina may feel one way now and look back on it a certain way later in life in terms of what this relationship has been to her. But it's it's you know, I it's it's tough. It's it's a tricky situation and an age old problem in tennis, sadly. Yeah.
1: it's also complicated in in this sense because technically Rebecca is the employer here, yeah, and, and he's her employee, and she's an adult, and she has agency over, you know, who, who's around her, so, yeah, it's 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 very, yeah, it's just a very difficult, like, conversation to have. And,
0: the power dynamics are very strange, are very strange, and, like, I'll yeah, throw in exactly, that he, yeah. you know, he has her name tattooed on his arm, like, which just sort of makes me uncomfortable yeah. in terms of, that's not what you, normally you put your boss's name on your arm, I don't know. It's, uh, I get it. I get that they won together and whatever, but it's it's all tricky and uncomfortable and, and messy. And I just thought it was a thing worth, worth talking about because it is, and they're not the only pair, certainly on tour, even active now, player, coach, where people sort of look askance at it for different reasons. There's other relationships out there that people on tour, and I'm not going to name all of them, but like people look at and, and cringe sometimes. And how much should that cringing turn into action? I think that's something that Pam is sort of Exploring and trying to foreground in her current her yeah. current mission. Um, so it's an interesting moment, and there will be it will be pushback. Like I'm not surprised that there is pushback to this. It would be weird if there wasn't.
1: Yeah, and in in, in general sense, I, I do think that the WTA should be doing more, and, and in terms of preemptive education and maybe formalizing its its verification of coaches. And I, I do think they can do more to be more involved with players and coaches and. But again, it's difficult when they're independent and they're employers, or if they're not employers and they're family. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very difficult.
0: No, it even goes to like obviously there's been lots of conversations over the years about the aforementioned Stephanositsopoulos and Apostolos and why doesn't he just you know get rid of his father? Like it's very hard to get rid of your father in life. You know, if you in terms of family dynamics and how things work, it's 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 all messy and interrelational and and different sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, quite a quite a mess. Um, speaking of mess, the one sort of topic I did really want to get to more more fully here um, as the show continues uh, is to talk about the mess that you wandered into um, one night last week after the uh, relatively routine win from Novak Djokovic over Andrei Rublev in the quarterfinals. Timani, you were walking around the grounds in Melbourne Park, and what did you find?
1: So yeah, I was walking around the grounds. I, I walked towards the uh there were there was like a group of fans who were cheering at the foot of the um the Rod Laver Arena on step on at the foot of the steps and what what I now in in hindsight realized was probably um serjan Djokovic, who was who'd probably who'd probably just been there and was leaving as as I got there or had had left as I got there and and when I when I got there I saw a, a, a group of, a, a quite a, a lot of fans though um, around the stairs, um, fans of you know Serbian fans, fans holding Serbian flags. But then, like nestled between them it, on the steps was maybe maybe a group of four people also or, or holding Russian flags. One was holding a Russian flag with a big picture of uh, Vladimir Putin's face. Mm-hmm. Another had a Z. Another just had a regular Russian flag. Another had I think uh I think the, the flag was for Night Wolves, which is like this gang of um, you know, well, it's this organization that is ca- kind of has it's, it's like a motor motorcycle group, but they have they're affiliated with the Kremlin. with Putin's mm. called them his friends, etc. And and they've also had members who have fought in in the the, the wars with Ukraine in 2014 and and now. <laughs> and so they were just making noise and chanting and saying Russia, Serbia, and you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it was hard what what to even make make of it, you know. Because they, they were quick. Eventually, they were kind of hustled. You know, they were hustled away. And as it as it turns out, um, they threatened a security guard and and or threatened some security guards. And eventually, police took them for questioning and ejected them from the tournament. But yeah, it was just it was just you know, you, you go. You, I went there expecting just to see kind of jubilant Serbian fans and confronted with that. Just those ugly scenes was a lot.
0: It was a pro war um, rally. Like it was like yeah, on the grounds it's... of the Happy Slam. It's so surreal. Like I I had I saw this video the next morning. I don't think I'd stayed up for the entirety of the Rublev Djokovic match. I definitely didn't. And when I woke up and saw your video like later, it's just like, what the hell? Like yeah. I, you yeah. know, I the great tweeter Henry Bredstick, who hopefully people follow on on Twitter, recently reshared my Darko Grincharov story for for Slate. And I was, so I was looking at it again. I hadn't read it in a while.
1: A great, time a, great yeah, it was
0: time. a wonderful time for the Australian Open. And I said something in the opening of the story about how like that, I think it was 2018, Australian Open, how that could have been like the most politically charged Australian Open ever because there was some market court comments and there was Tennis Sangren's Twitter account. And that, I mean, that all feels very quaint now, but you're having a literal pro-war rally break out on the steps of Rod Laver Arena with, like you said, the yeah. Z logo of the invaders with all this stuff. I honestly think like the, the Serdan Djokovic showing up there is kind of incidental to it. I don't think that's actually a big part of the story. I think it's mostly just a phenomenally yeah. huge security failure on the part of the Australian Open to let this happen. And they'd already had banned flags. There was an issue already where there were people waving a Russian flag at a match featuring, uh, I think, Bindel, I believe, who's the Ukrainian player. It was Bindel, I think, one of the Ukrainians. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was also similarly yeah. Ukrainian flags and hecklers at a Rublev match. Um, which are being used for these very pointed purposes. Um, uh, all this is, I mean, on the security failure, I said this before, we got a question. I got a couple questions from people, but someone, let me see if I can find this question here. Becky asks, listener Becky, surely it's time for Craig Talley to step down. Another year with spot fires put out left, right, and center by him not showing face at all. I completely agree. I don't know how he keeps surviving all this shit. It's ridiculous. Any one of these things would have derailed a normal CEO or leader of a tournament. Like, you think about, like, yeah, but, like, the level of chaos and stuff that's happened under his watch is is crazy. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, all this is to say, like, seeing how froth this is and how much, like, nationality is becoming more and more a part of this sport. And, like, this goes even just to the atmosphere of the Djokovic-Titsipas uh, final, you know, which really did feel like uh, a soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, uh, match with, you know, seeing, like, the videos of, like, Greek fans with flags and, like, flares and smoke walking down flinders lane flinders road rather on the way to their uh flinders street whatever flinders it is the main flinders to uh on the way to the stadium like just looking like soccer ultras like this is tennis like it's like what is what is happening here it just feels like it's getting i've I've quoted this line a few times but our colleague jannick schneider the german reporter said last year um that that we are all political reporters at this point we just get assigned to cover tennis tournaments and that's kind of completely right like it's becoming so preoccupying and i'm just wondering how to dial it back like and i almost wonder like looking at what they've done with sabalenka and the you know other belarusians and russians taking the flags like can we just like take up take away all flags like i think that's i think that's a doable option it made people like those great things about it sometimes and yes there are wins that are meaningful to certain countries in ways that are benign potentially but like the sort of increasing wrapping up these tennis players in nationalism and it's it's obviously really strong with Djokovic I mean Djokovic is tied to um, Serbian identity and Serbian like national pride in this way that I don't think any tennis player has ever been tied to their country before like you see like you know his name being projected on skyscrapers and stuff in Belgrade after he wins and like things like that like the parades and the level of just fervor for him as being seen as this you know, downright messianic figure almost in Serbia um, who's come to sort of redeem Serbia and and bring them out of this dark time they had um, into the light of being this great champion and greatest of all time in the sport. It's just a lot. It all becomes very, very fraught and very charged. And, you know, you see like uh, there were these other, you talk about sort of the Russian group extreme flags. There were these uh, like Chetnik flags, which are this, you know, the the number of wars you have to study too many to like get, to be up-to-date yeah. on tennis these days is crazy. And, like, so there, those flags are in Melbourne and Adelaide, and he, like, posed with one in Adelaide, and then it becomes a question, like, what was with his dad? Like, how knowingly was he doing this? Like, how much people just taking advantage of him being there? And, like, should he have to be aware all the time? And this has been an issue in tennis before, you know, like, with, like, I remember there was an, an incident in, in Washington one year where, like, uh, Shay Sue France, held up, like, a, a Taiwan flag for her to pose with, and she, like, took a photo with that. And it was, like, a whole, like, oh, my God, like, an actual Taiwan flag, not the Chinese Taipei flag. Ah kind of moment for for the tour there. And there was some like bless his heart, like some new communications rep who had no idea what this was. He wasn't trained on all the geopolitics, you know, landmines that exist in tennis these days. And there are so many. And yeah, and you could even like say in a, other war, like uh uh with kachanov and and his support for yeah. you know, for Artsakh, which is the region of ethnic Armenians inside of sort of uh what's currently Azerbaijani territory and like there would fight for autonomy and That stuff and that's a little more positive. There were a lot of people bringing flags of that region to his matches, and it's just, it's just all, it just all just feels so fraught. Especially with Djokovic, like everything just feels like it's so charged. And obviously, Serbia's had a complicated history and stuff. And I'm just wondering, like, how we can, if it's worth, I feel like it's worth bringing down the temperature, however possible for the sport. And I, I think that's something that they're not really trying to do. They keep trying to foreground nationality in these all these team events, you know, like United Cup. But I saw a tweet from during the final from Shola, friend of the show, Shola, Dr. Sholes, who said, we do not need this soccer atmosphere in tennis for any match ever. Like as much as people, you know, want, I don't know for tennis, maybe people, it can be seen as stuffy or holy toity or, or whatever, exclusive, not to want the sort of more, uh, raucous populism, whatever you want to call it in tennis. But I don't know for me, it's just, it's getting to be a lot. And, and, I know that, you know, ten- nationality can mean a lot to country- to people, you know, like Elena Robackina. Like, she got recruited by Kazakhstan because Kazakhstan thought it would be very valuable to have more tennis players under their flag. And it- her winning Wimbledon, you know, under their flag was a big boost for tennis in the country, by all accounts. It's shaped some careers like, you know, Naomi Osaka, other players who've had choices for what country to represent. But For me, like, during wartime, and we are in wartime right now, meaningfully with the Russians in Ukraine, it just feels like a a big net negative, and I just wish there was a way to sort of make all the players independent. Is that an overreaction, or what do you, what do you think of the sort of landscape of of this?
1: No, I broadly agree because you know, from my perspective, I I, I when I started watching tennis, I, I wasn't attracted by watching someone from the same country as me. No. It was it was the players, it was the games, it was the personality. That's the, to me. That's the that's what makes tennis attractive. That it that they're individuals and. And you can support anyone you want, and and we've actually seen where it's, you know, it's actually quite difficult these days to, you know, with Davis Cup and with the United Cup to 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 sell a competition on on nationality because you know at a normal tournament spectators would just go and watch the, the players they want to see. It D- doesn't matter where they're from, you know, as as long as they they like that player. Whereas it's kind of all when the United Cup, for example, or or Davis Cup, even you'd, you'd see the home tie would have. Masses of support, and then other ties would not really have many other people because it's it's all about nationality. I I, I do agree with you, and that I wouldn't be against seeing fewer flags. Some tournaments and slams do; they don't allow flags. I believe Wimbledon doesn't allow any flags.
0: Yeah, Cincinnati had this incident last year where they had the woman who yeah. brought a Ukrainian flag um, and and was at courtside at a qualify match between two Russians. I think it was what was it Kalinskaya and Potapova. I believe in qualifying and she got ejected and they showed, they had a, a line in their rules that was no flags yeah. allowed um, on site that was never enforced previously because there've been plenty of American flags over the years. And lots of Serbian flags also in Cincinnati too the I remembered seeing lots of at different times that only got brought up occasionally, but like I've been to Eurovision Eurovision that's very strict flag positive, kind of known for flags, like sea of flags in the crowd at Eurovision. That's a very common visual uh, for that event. And like they have, Specific rules about what flags you can and can't bring in. They do like really police it well, and I think tennis. I'll show you just didn't seem to be up to that challenge. And it's tough. Where do you have the security guards? And like, they're supposed to have to recognize the flag of a extreme, you know, military, you know, paramilitary, whatever group in in Serbia that had a certain reputation in the '90s. Like, that's a lot of deep cuts to be asking for these. Security guards who are probably making minimum wage yeah. at these at these tournaments, like and and they had like I saw like flyers of like this flag is okay, like the Slovenian flag yeah, yeah. is okay, the Slovakian flag is okay, They're, but the one without those shields is not okay, which is the Russian flag. And then you add into this symbol, it's also still Russian. Like it's it's complicated. I just feel like. The way they're being weaponized, and certainly we're being weaponized by these Rush pro Russia pro-Russia protesters at the Australian Open. It's just I just don't I think the risk reward is, is bad and I would get rid of them and, and you know, let people cheer in their own languages and do whatever they want vocally, but just these symbols again during this wartime I think are are, are too much. And so yeah, yeah I would just First, like yeah. I would like to see a like even on Wikipedia, like, you know, if you look at the draws, like there's always a flag every row next to the people. Like, is that necessary? Like they're just there's people, like, I don't know. I think it's. I think. Yeah. It's, it, it, I think it's. I think it's trending the wrong way.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in general, yeah, I, I just don't. I'm, I'm not. I enjoy how in, individual tennis is, and it, you know, you, you mentioned the flags being policed. It was. It was very like. It was almost amusing to, to see like the um the security so security guards were, were given like this you know a four piece of paper, um with with Russian flags on that were pro- prohibited and and Belarusian flags, and the, the first few days after that incident. It was maybe like five flags. And then by the by the end of last week it was they had, you know, medieval Russian flags and one with Tsar Nicholas, you know, <laughs> on it and, and this and that. <laughs> and it, you know, all people just I mean clearly people you know, trying to get around it somehow. But <laughs> it's just like, it, it's <laughs> not, a lot.
0: Not Sar yeah. Nicholas. On the <laughs> yeah.
1: Let the man rest.
0: <laughs> I was, I was a cultural anthropology major in college who specialized in Eastern Europe. Like, so I am like academically or intellectually like fascinated by all this stuff. It's part of why I do like Eurovision and the sort of geopolitics involved in that. And parts of that in tennis are genuinely like just interesting and they give you a richer understanding of the world. Like, yeah you Djokovic know, again, like see like the, way he's foregrounded Serbian recent history and identity in tennis has been people who want to tune into that frequency of the sport you can learn a lot about that part of the world by, by learning more about Novak Djokovic and why he means this much to people and how he's seen in that country right but like it, it, I think it just like the, the, when Putin's face showed up and then again when, when Serdan Djokovic got embroiled in it and I don't again I don't think it was a major part I do think it was way too slow the statement from, from them to sort of step back distance themselves from that It took like, I think around 24 hours, at least after the video came out to make that statement, it was all just kind of, it's surreal and a mess. And I, you know, as we hopefully try to reintegrate these players, these, you know, because we want to have, it would be nice to have the Australian Open champion Sabalenka be able to play Wimbledon and, you know, have this all just get less fraught. Like, yeah. And then who knows, like, will, will Sabalenka be roped into, you know, showing up for Lukashenko in Minsk after her win? Like, that's, I have wondered, I don't know how that's going to go for her. Like, it's all yeah. a, it's all a tricky fraught time and the players are almost entirely pawns in this and that's and that's difficult and frustrating for them and that's gone through all of the russians and stuff and you know yeah
1: i, I should not in in, in sablenka's case it's it's particularly interesting like even i didn't imagine even more than if azarenko had won this tournament yes Azarenka's had you know she's she's met with Lukashenko in, in the past, but I think Sabalenka received a lot of criticism in in Belarus. You know, from obviously there were mass before recent events, there were massive protests and belief mm-hmm. that the election was you know like stolen and and the last election was not correct. So, so she's received a lot of criticism for. You know, meeting with Lukashenko. I think in, I think at the New Year's in twenty twenty one, she was at his address, and (laughs) there's like the footage of you know those on the cameras on it on him. He's giving a toast or a speech or whatever, and you can just see the back of Sabalenka's head, and Mm. it's yeah, and so so yeah.
0: Again, like you don't know how much of that is her own autonomy, though. Like again, because she's under a dictator. You don't know. Like, sure, I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying. Sure. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not blaming or absolving her. I'm just saying like it's complicated. <laughs> and
1: it's definitely compli- It's definitely complicated. But yeah, I, I do. I do think there's. Um, yeah. Just some people believe that there are periods invitations that you can't refuse, and others were well, it's just more que- More questionable, I guess. And but yes, she she does live under a, a dictator, and and she was asked about it after her title, and she you know she noted that she lives in Miami and although she 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 was in Russia in the off season but she lives in Miami and, and certainly uh, it might be a good idea to stay there for the time being anyway but what, yeah that that would be that would be certainly an, an, another big issue if if she was to be invited to Belarus and as its happened yeah with, with past Belarusian champions when, when they've won single than double slams but yeah uh
0: I'm just looking at sorry. I just got it's a, on a news feed. There's a headline that showed up on this page from Fox News saying ESPN's Chris Fowler and John Macker have awkward exchange over Novak Djokovic's quote choices after Australian Open win. Like just like everything is a mess. Tennis is making it on Fox News repeatedly.
1: I I, I do say that. Though, I would say though, as as a journalist, I do. And and you mentioned it as well. I, I do enjoy mm-hmm. the fact that it's it's a lot richer than just. Oh, yeah. Forehands and backhands, and that there's so many different you know subjects beyond ten, beyond the actual tennis that we're, yeah. we're charged with covering. You know, I think the Kachanov, you know, what happened with him was 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 an example of that. It was, I felt like I, I was the the resident Nagorno Karabakh Artsakh expert, yeah, <laughs> but by virtue of having having read about it a few few times, unlike everyone else in the press room, so. Somewhat
0: selfishly as a writer, like, and again, I'm working this book on Naomi Osaka, and there's what makes Naomi so fascinating is because her career and her existence has touched on so many different issues. And a lot of them are sort of cultural geopolitical kind of things, occasionally less war zone related, um, but, you know, but her Japanese identity, her multicultural identity, like these are all things that do make the sport richer and getting to cover them through those lenses, which, you know, I worked for, for 10 years covering the sport for the New York Times. Those were the kind of stories they were really into guardian not dissimilar for what you work for like that's the kind of stuff that's currently of more interest to editors and readers i think than just you know match reports which have gotten kind of redundant in this day of streaming where every match is visible and you know highlights are always replayable for anyone who wants them like our job is not so much to record what happens on the court the forehands and backhands as you said it's to sort of explore why this relates to the world and, and yes i i definitely don't think it's been boring and we haven't mentioned like Peng shui and the whole china thing like every continent has had a piece of the action at some point in, in tennis lately like in terms of being part of this this fraught field um but it is it is yeah. fun. and i just i just i just worry anyway i said this like you know aggressive pro war pep rally breakout on the steps of rod labor arena for me that was like let's slow the f down and let's see what we can do to try to to lower the temperature here because it's it's dangerous, you know, and it, 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 to to keep this going at a lot of different levels and it's unfair to the players, you know, people like Rublev, like Azarenka, had this whole exchange where she was asked about it and got, you know, probably deservedly combat. I don't know what the word is for it, but it was it was not she was not having it, you know, in this sort of line of questioning for her yeah. there. But but it's it's also so crazy to me. In March of last year was that in New Wells. And Daniil Medvedev, his new number one, is there. And, you know, he's a happy, going, you know, easygoing guy. And he gets asked in his first NWL press conference, when are you going to have the Russian people rise up against Putin? It's like, like what, what? <laughs> what? He's a tennis player. Like, he lives in Monaco. He's a tennis player who likes to play video games. Like, he's not. A politician, but these players, because of the flags that's their name, become de facto diplomats yeah. in ways that are just Gosh, yeah. messy. Yeah. So, and they're and they are and they are underqualified for those jobs, respectfully. So,
1: yeah. And another example is like Rubikina, you know, who obviously doesn't represent Russia anymore, being asked either before or after the Wimbledon final whether you know to to like formally denounce Putin, which is just yeah, yeah. It it's, it it can certainly be too much. Yeah.
0: Like I said, I, I I think in this sort of war time, it's not it's not fun. It's not just a game, the, the flag thing anymore. You know, it's not just like a bunch of colors. Like these are the stakes do feel higher and everything. So yeah, I would I would escalate that.
1: Yeah, that that's been kind of just my, my thought in general. Just that I I I enjoy tennis as, as an individual sport, and and I think that's where it's strongest as individuals. Yeah, I, I certainly resist when kind of nat- nationality is forced upon it and presented as like one of the you know defining aspects of it and and the, again going back in circles but the reason why events like davis cup are struggling is precisely because for players the focus is individual yeah yeah it's especially you know in these mode in this era of professional tennis i'll
0: also say in general the australian open the adelaide players did better than the united cup players like, you know, the United Cup, in terms of people who made deep runs in Melbourne, was, was not the best, with the exception of Tsitsipas, who made the final. I think I think six of the semifinalists didn't play United Cup, something like that. It's just a lot of sort of emotion to put into that. And then you have situations, too, where Lorenzo Mazzetti in the United Cup final is like injured, but should he push through to help his team or should he preserve his own chances? It's just like, it's just a lot of sort of extra stuff, like let them be their own selfish in that way, autonomous entities in tennis that having to feel like they're playing for something bigger all the time or even occasionally um, when we know what they all kind of have the same goals with these grand slams and stuff. Um, okay. This was a lot of show. I want a couple of quick, very sort of quick hit things. Shout out to the Czechs, uh, Krejcikova and Siniaka for winning their fourth straight slam that they've uh, been able to play together. They've won four of the last five slams. The one they didn't win was the French open last year where Krejcikova tested positive for uh, COVID before her first doubles match. So I think Krejcikova is at a hall of fame lock at this point with all her winning. And this one, one of the
1: top ones as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Sinakawa you know, may be getting there someday too with these all these wins. And they want to ask you, I'm curious what it was like on the grounds in terms of buzz or lack thereof around this Hijikata-Kubler doubles win. And a second straight Aussie team winning the men's doubles after Kiros and Kokonakis, who got so much attention last year. Got a whole Netflix episode about their win. And then <laughs> Hijikata and Kubler come out of really nowhere as wild cards and not very highly regarded wild cards either, honestly, in doubles. Uh, and win this title. Um, what was was that? What does that say about Kyros and Kokkinakis's win? What was that? Or was that like?
1: I mean, I mean, I, I think within the stadium the you know atmosphere was nice and you know it was enjoyable and it was a nice moment. And as you said, it was a you know, it, it was you know Kiros and Kokinakis are two very good singles players. Whereas yeah. and and you know Kokonakis obviously even you know lower than how how people viewed him. As a player whereas <laughs> yeah, this was a wild wild card group pairing but I, I certainly yeah certainly it didn't outside of you know the actual match it didn't receive the well even the, the the atmosphere wasn't as rowdy as as in as last year and it certainly didn't cut through in the way that Kyros and Gokunakis did and you know, again that's that's down to the singles players and the prominence of the players who won last year so yeah it was a it, it was a nice event and it was dramatic. Uh, that if you people should watch the match point where <laughs> that, um, I think Kubala like defends two overheads while at the net and then Hijikata mm. like falls on the floor, it's very dramatic. It was fun, but yeah, it, it didn't have like the lasting, you know, effect and impact. Yeah. On the, and, and on the country and in general, like, I think, um, viewership was quite like significantly down. I, I know Channel 9 like. There was a story in Australian media that Channel Nine renewed the Australian Open for like quite a few years, a number of years, maybe maybe yeah, a, a large amount of years, maybe like fifteen years, I think. And their viewership's down like forty percent or something. With no, there's yeah. no originally there's, there's no party, there's no Federer, there's no Serena, there's no.
0: Yeah, I don't think we hit that note as hard as we could have at the beginning of the show, but this was by almost everyone considered a very underwhelming Australian Open, like. Yeah. Like, that was the tone, and like I said, I think really until the women's final was a really just tour de force kind of match, honestly, yeah. kind of unexpectedly so. Like, I think that really ended it on a very positive note, and Djokovic win, obviously, and the catharsis of that was, a, you know, tidy story, but, like, the buzz around this tournament was very minimal, and it was not yeah. really considered a good or interesting tournament, uh, outside of Andy Murray, uh, honestly, for the first, like, 12 days of it. So... I, it's not surprising numbers are down. Obviously, they lost Bardi, who won the championship last year. They didn't have Curios. They didn't have... Well, Serena and Federer weren't there last year either. And all made the final last year, he only played two matches this time. Like, this was a down Australian Open, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the weaker slams in terms of as an entirety along the way, even if, again, I think it really was meaningfully redeemed by by these two finishes, the women's final, and then honestly, even just the sort of Djokovic emotion of it, I do think actually is a meaningfully powerful finish for the, for the, for the tournament. Also, quick. Also, speaking of big emotions, just other results. Alfie Hewitt had a big reaction to winning his first men's singles title in the wheelchairs in Australia. Uh, Sam Schroeder defended his quads title. Didi De Groot, who wins everything women's women singles and wheelchairs, also won there as well. We mentioned the uh, all Russian final and the girls. Uh, Alexander Blocks, uh, mm-hmm. who with a fun, fun to spell name, the the great uh, C K X at the end of his name, Blocks, uh, Belgian, uh, won a third set tiebreak over uh, Lerner Tian. Uh, uh, it was fun. That was a fun. match! That was it was a really match. fun match that was really good that was really good yeah uh it was it was interesting watching it as a, as a fan fully i got to really appreciate uh because i wasn't filing i didn't file anything except for the podcasts off this tournament i'm just on book stuff so i was watching more than i planned to probably honestly of, of the tennis and and seeing uh getting really into the world feed i thought they were really good There's a lot of really talented people on the world feed really enjoyed like laura robson Mark Petrie, Roger Rashid, I thought was great. Wally Misura, I thought was really good. There's a lot of like different kinds of voices. Shanda Rubin was on there. I'd heard her a lot already before. And past Nick McCarville. I'm trying to leave people out, but lots of lots of really interesting names, and I, I had a really nice time with that, and thought that was pretty super duper as well. And it was just a, a much better alternative, honestly, than having uh, just the ESPN commentators who were relegated to being calling the matches from. Connecticut in the Bristol studios by ESPN as a cost cutting measure, which I think really does meaningfully hurt the product that the viewers get ultimately. Uh, I think, honestly, I think John McEnroe especially had a hard time with this. I think he was just sort of rambling somewhat mindlessly and detached from the tenants at certain points. When I first had to switch to that, when they cut off the ESPN plus world feed access.
1: Is, is, that, dif- is that different? Is that different from
0: usual? I For me, it felt worse. I don't know. I hadn't been listening for a while. And then like I was I, the first time I had to switch over to them, was the men's semifinal day, so it was Tsitsipas Hochinoff semi, and he was just like going on about like how like how the chair empire shouldn't be giving him time violations and like he couldn't even see the clock, McEnroe, from where he is. Like, how does he know about what the time it violations is and just like telling the umpires to stay out of it? It was all it was very jarring for me. And and it was frustrating also that McEnroe was filibustering so much that it didn't let Darren Cahill, who they had on the court in in Rod Arena, didn't let him uh be a part of the, and actually get the on-court insights, which is something that as when I watched later matches, uh, there was a Brad Gilbert, Patrick McEnroe, and Cahill match for the second match, the Paul Djokovic match, and the women's final, which was Mary Joe Fernandez and uh, Renee Stubbs on the on the court there. Those were better at, at doing that. So, uh, yeah, but just the McEnroe thing, I think it was – was, I know certain people for a certain demographic, it's very important that he's there. I just don't think it's helping tennis at all. And I think it's something that got raised, you know – by like uh Caitlyn Thompson, I think interestingly and, you know, uh we'll see if break, how much breakpoint actually moves the needle or not. But like in terms of converting uh breakpoint viewers to the extent that is a group that's gonna be out there meaningfully looking to tennis, I think this is a really a really rough yeah, know. for that yeah. because of the break point quote unquote curse but there was nobody who was you could latch on to from the show who then did anything that straight up and you could dig into it. that was a big missed opportunity and just that's that's a disappointment for the sport that is like you were joking about it but I do think it's actually meaningfully hard like you know uh, a loss for the sport to have all those characters people got to spend time with and get attached to and there were probably too many on the show, honestly, they probably spent too wide a net and spent too little time with each of them, but that none of them did anything in Melbourne was, was pretty disappointing. Uh, but yeah, but as those viewers are coming over, I think it's really important to for commentators especially to be engaging and to be talking in a way that gets people to stay and watch tennis. I think a lot of people are going to be trying tennis for the first time, potentially, in these months ahead. If break point and break did not do great on the ratings, the Netflix put out like wasn't in the top ten in almost any country. It was like number nine in Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland, I believe, yeah. uh, but not top ten anywhere else. Um, yeah, but it could have shelf life. I don't know.
1: It should be noted that like obvious comparison point, Draft to Survive wasn't like a massive success. It wasn't hugely successful in its yeah. first season, but then it you know during COVID and during like lockdowns, it it's, at some point it just clicked and became this huge huge frenzy.
0: I hope the second half of Breakpoint is also better because I was reading an interview actually recently with the guy who did Breakpoint and he was saying that um, they went down to Australia not really knowing what they were doing, like meeting players for the first time. They didn't really have a plan. And I think maybe that kind of shows in the first episodes, especially the the first episode. And so hopefully if they can be a little bit more purposeful, and obviously it's tough with this moving target. Like You don't know if a player you pick is going to do anything that's going to make for good TV in that week. And so... Yeah, I mean, like, who knows who they if they uh, were they were they visible in Melbourne this week?
1: They yeah, they were in the end. Yeah, I know. Like, okay. a couple of players talked about them. Like, Ogaroon said they were filming stuff. I think yeah. a couple, a couple, yeah, quite a few players were still there, a few were retained, a few new ones. So we'll see. But some, some, but also some weren't. <laughs> anyway, what does that mean? Uh, nothing. Just there'll be some new faces next. If if it, if the next season happens, it still hasn't been announced yet or anything. It still hasn't been. Confirmed. Yeah, hasn't been,
0: I don't know if it's been greenlit yet, fully officially. Yeah,
1: yeah. But they, they are doing something I get, I guess, to ensure that they have something if if there is a second season.
0: Yeah. On that note, thank you very much, Timani for helping this season of NCR along greatly. This was a long episode. I think I'll do it all in one piece. It might split in into. We'll see how we're feeling. But thank you very much for for being on here. Have a safe trip home. Enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Cool. I know you're standing there a little bit. Yep. and have uh, have a yeah lovely time and talk to you again sometime soon
1: yeah catch you later
0: bye everybody thank you goodbye
1: hey,
0: i don't work here and if i did i would not sell you shit